Comparable Podcast, number 107, September 2012. Welcome back to the Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and tonight we are going to be discussing one of my favorite movies of all time. It's true. Uh, It is a fine film from 1982. Um... Directed by Nicholas Meyer. Um, you may mostly know it for the uh, the title the title character, a, a fellow named Khan. <laughs> never, never heard of him. Was your head shaking in rage as you I was, as you my, shouted that? Because it almost needs to. My be. fists were shaking. Oh. Yes, I think I've I think I've blown out my microphone while shouting Khan too. <laughs> And your voice should be echoing in space throughout a dead moon. It's it's exactly Khan, Khan, Khan. Uh, it's Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. And joining me tonight to talk about this uh, most excellent of Star Trek movies here on uh, we are recording this on Con Wednesday, everybody's favorite chain restaurant, Star Trek themed chain restaurant. It's always Wednesday at Con Wednesday. Are uh, my fellow Star Trek fan uh, Scott McNulty? Hi, Scott. Hello, Jason. I have been, and always will be, recording. <laughs> Indeed. Also joining me is the great Steve Lutz. Hi, Steve. Oh, was were you expecting the great Steve Lutz? Yeah. I'm sorry. I better get off so he can... Right. He Star can Trek and in. Babylon 5 are not in the same universe, Steve. I, I am really looking forward to discussing Star Trek Babylon 5 <laughs> Excellent. <tonight. laughs> this is from the Babylon 5 extended Star Trek exactly. universe, right? Exactly. Right. That's where it's from. And joining me, right. uh, somebody I've been talking to about this podcast since we before we started, and he has not been on it until tonight. Uh, he is a sci-fi fan extraordinaire... Uh, and uh, and mobile analyst extraordinaire too. He's a uh, he's a lovely fellow, and we're glad to finally have him on the incomparable. It's Michael Gartenberg. Hi. You task me, Jason. You task me. <laughs> you, I task you. You task me, and I shall have him. He's going to chase you around the flames of perdition. Yes, and the, and some nebula that was not in Moby Dick, which apparently they knew about in 1996. This is not a subtle movie. <laughs> <laughs> what? There's a lot of depth and yeah. There stuff. actually there there is some subtlety in it, but there is also some not subtlety in it. So uh, let's get started. In the great tradition of incomparable movie episodes, I was going to uh, I, I suppose first, even though John Syracuse isn't here, I should ask if there anybody has any opening remarks. But I, otherwise, I thought we would just sort of walk through the movie chronologically and and see where that takes us because um, you know that that seems to be the most effective way to approach these movies. And I have to say, I, I like John Syracuse a lot, but I am very glad he's not on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I love this movie, and I would like to continue loving this movie. He was not invited. Yes, I, I should probably point out that I am not here to bash this film. I am not, as you know, a, uh, a, a big-time Star Trek fan. Good. You got it. Star Trek. Good. I, I am not filled with nostalgia for the TV show, but uh, and in fact, I just saw this film for the first time last week. Are you serious? Really? And I watched it for a second time this huh. week. Um, but I am not here to bash uh, classic films. Watch it uh, like ninety more times, and you'll catch up with me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was not expecting much from this movie because the uh, the uh, Star Trek first generation series always struck me as fun, but largely goofy. And uh, and then I watched this film, and uh, it turns out that it is fun, but largely goofy. See. 
Um, and, and the first time I was picking at it a bit, but then I, the second time I watched it, I just sat back and watched. And I have to admit, once I did that, I really enjoyed the movie. Um, a couple of beers helped. <laughs> I cannot Bush. believe that we found the only person in the world who, before last week, had not seen Star Trek II. But he's here. Yes. Well, now having said that, I, I'm not sure I would place it even in the same quadrant as any of the Star Wars films from the original. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I know I knew you and you and uh, and uh, Scott have both said that you prefer this to Empire. Yes, I believe. yes, indeed, indeed. I yeah. have. So I come to this podcast in the hope that I may cultivate an understanding of why this <laughs> film is so beloved. Well, for one, there were no Ewoks in it, and that that helped. <laughs> I know I must be missing something because Jason, I know to be a man of some refinement, given his appreciation of uh, real genius. Ah, uh, see, there you go. But it is interesting because this film came two years after Empire, and I think there was a lot of influence in the way Empire was made and the way they made this film, as opposed to Star Trek One, which, if you watch this film, they just simply pretend didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. When when we were talking uh, last week, I think, uh, and wisely so, we <laughs> you said, well, we got to at least mention the original Star Trek before we talk about Star Trek Two because it was, you know, kind of uh, ponderous and. Uh, Pastels. Yeah, it was not really a very good movie. It's like they tried to do everything in that movie, and so they did nothing. And it was like <laughs> the worst payoff of a film ever. They got to the end of that movie after sitting for like three hours, like, what? <laughs> I still remember the ad campaign from that film, which was people right. leaving the theater and uh, and dumping their thoughts on camera. And Nobody could really think of what to say. And in fact, I just I still remember the young kid at the very end. He just stares out into space and doesn't say anything for about three seconds. And then the only thing he can say is, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't quite know what to do with the franchise. The franchise had been gone. I mean, no one had ever done this before, right? That went off the air. All of a sudden, Star Wars is this popular thing. And Roddenberry convinces the studio, let's do Star Trek again, but now I can do it with a big budget special effects. And you can see the influence in the first film of Star Wars. You know, Star Wars had a light speed jump, and so Star Trek suddenly had to do a warp jump, but we're going to do ours in color as opposed to the black and yeah, white one. They travel by rainbow. Yeah, they absolutely. <laughs> it, was, it was totally there. And, you know, 45 minutes of shots of the Enterprise, which they, you know, it was good because they reused those shots, like, you know, for the next five films. <laughs> yeah, they're building up the library of stock photography. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that's what it was. But the thing is, everything was just so totally different in this film. Like, this was the film that really should have started the franchise. Well, right, because it's got the characters right, and it's got character interaction, and the characters were always the strength of the original series anyway, and so to make it about the sort of special effects and and uh, and have this kind of really long, ponderous, preachy uh, kind of plot, as opposed to in this, where it's there's action, and then there are some really nice character interactions, and there's a you know there's a theme and there's a, a message, but it's not a it's not preachy, and you know you're right. It, 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 this is the movie that was. Uh, the movie that they should have made, but they 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 didn't. They took this kind of leftover TV episode and blew it up, and yeah, not not so good. But they clearly pretended that the first one didn't exist, and you go right into the fact the uniforms are different, the ship is different. I mean, it's just, just like totally. The only thing that's the same is Kirk is an admiral, and, and isn't it basically the same opening? I mean, I seem to recall. I don't remember the first well, but I remember that the they were. 
they were wandering up to the new. They Enterprise. go up to the new ship in both of them, and a lot of the stuff that in, that's in in Star Trek Two is uh, is effect scenes from from Star Trek One. So that part is the same. But again, they do it. This is jumping slightly ahead, but they do it in like thirty seconds in this movie, and in Star Trek right. the motion picture, it's like ten minutes. But weren't they? But they were not uh, planning to be on the Enterprise in that first film, were they? I, I thought they were retired in that film as well, and then ended up just by virtue of some mistake. Yes, yes. Kirk, Kirk in both movies does take over for the actual captain, right? And then, well, in the first in the first movie, they were sort of less subtle about it. That Kirk <laughs> takes over, and but th- but that movie opened with like twenty minutes of Klingons being destroyed. Oh, that's true. That's true. Whereas this movie begins with uh, uh, the the uh, we're, we're thrown into the twenty third century, and right. we don't know what we're looking at. It looks like it's the bridge of the Enterprise going into the neutral zone, except that some of our familiar friends are there, but there's this girl with pointy ears who's who's in the captain's chair and uh and she manages to get the ship blown up girls <laughs> women drivers no survivors <laughs> we're all we're all hearing that music and then you see spock you see Uhura, and you see mccoy and you see Sula. i actually wrote this down last night and then all of a sudden she turns around like, who the hell is sitting in that chair <laughs> whoa Some what is Bond. going on here <laughs> You know, I, and so this is the first time I've watched this movie with a critical eye because usually I am just basking in the glory that is Star Trek 2. Indeed. Uh, so <laughs> I don't too. think about it too much. But as I'm watching it, so I know obviously what the first scene is, right? It's Kobayashi Maru. We find out that, uh, you know, it's a, they're in a simulator and it's a no-win situation. It sets up one of these great uh, pieces of lore in the Star Trek universe, right? And then we find out there's a payoff later on with the, the whole Kobayashi Maru thing. But uh, as I'm watching it, so it's a training exercise, and I think, why do they have these experienced officers oh, right, right. playing along in this training exercise? It makes no sense. Shouldn't it all be cadets? Yes. Well, I, I guess presumably they're there because you think that they're going to give you some guidance, right? And then they're killed off in reverse. Stulu, Uhura, McCoy, Spock, they're all going. And my question is, who's wired the bridge? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of pyrotechnics involved. Yeah. So. And, and has no one yet put seatbelts on the Enterprise? They're the only ones with enough experience to reasonably throw mm. themselves across the bridge in a convincing and, fashion. And Kirk seems quite upset about the fact that they he says they destroyed the bridge and, and, and you with it. Like, you know, how dare you? You broke my ship. Well, who wired this thing to explode when fake Klingons <laughs> fire fake torpedoes at it? Well, and if you remember in the first one, they had seatbelts, like the armrests sort of collapsed oh, in their thing. It's true. I guess someone's figured that just kind of looked stupid. Like, you yeah, know what? It, it did just, look just stupid. Roll acro- or just roll across the floor Sh- from now on. Just shake the ship. That's true. And of course, so the Star Trek II, ever, there was a rumor before it came out that Spock was going to get killed. So they put the scene in and killed Spock immediately. In the first scene, think, right. Oh, okay. He's not really dead. It's just he'll a fake fine. out. Yeah, he'll be fine. But but you know, the first time you see it, you don't know that it's a simulation. We don't know what's going on. Then they open the door and you see kind of Kirk in that shadow. That's so oh, there. He is. <laughs> now we're now we're going to get some explanation as to what's going on in this parallel universe. But at first, you think it's God. But then you think, what does God need with a star <laughs> <laughs> or a hairpiece? Uh, Captain Kirk at the beginning. It's it's really funny in the beginning of this movie. Um, he he's he's kind of a, a a jerk, right? He's like he has no sense of humor. He he really kind of uh, uh, gives it to Savik when he comes in and says, uh, you know, you you screwed this up, and and uh, Bakoy's making jokes, and and he's not listening, and um he and he has a conversation with Spock that is not I mean, he accepts this. I guess it's implied, but it's never said outright that this is his like fiftieth birthday, and he's feeling very old and washed up in his little admiral's admiral's job. And and uh, 
Bones you, think so? you get a book from Spock and Bones brings him antique glasses and booze. You know. And Romulan Al. I thought that was great. The scene with him and McCoy and those glasses. I mean, to me, that's one of the best scenes in the film because this is about age. This is about like these people that have grown old together and everyone else has kind of accepted their place in life except for Kirk. And he's trying to deal with it. You know, galloping around the galaxies is a game for the young. I'm I'm not doing that anymore. And and McCoy's like, that's not you. (laughs) Yeah, really, the whole theme of this film is our journey through Kirk's midlife crisis. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's what this is. In fact, the final line of the film is, I feel young. But But part of this to me was the young Kirk, right? Remember, this is the guy who was the youngest Starfleet captain in history, who brought the Enterprise back on a five-year mission without killing most of his crew. Um, he was a hero. And now he's like this middle-aged guy, and the rest of this film is him taking consequences for all of his actions. And, you know, we look back at some of those actions, like, yeah, that was pretty stupid. Like, you just left him on that planet. You just him on <laughs> <a> planet. <laughs> you know, I, I found myself, for the first time, I was rooting for Khan last night. <laughs> Well, Khan, Khan has a lot of issues, but but he's Kirk is not without blame, right? Khan is a little peeved. I watched Space Seed before I watched this. Before I watched this, I, mean, I really did my homework, guys. I take this. Yeah, hey, I did too. Um, and and in Space Seed, he's kind of not a likable guy. You know, Kirk brings him out of hibernation. He tries to kill him. You know, take over the ship. And you know, in, in classic stuff that you don't think about when you're watching the, the, the show. Well, I'll just remove remove you on this planet, and you know. And we move along. And this film sort of explores all of those things. We see that with his relationship with Carol Marcus, who we've never heard of before. Um, and, you know, all the exposition that they set up. But I think that scene with McCoy really sets it up the best because those glasses come into play. I never noticed this before. Those glasses come into play like three or four times throughout yeah. the film at critical moments. And it's like whoever directed those scenes are great, probably because Shatner was middle-aged at that point. <laughs> he plays it really well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and the glasses, of course, make a a cameo appearance in Star Trek Four, where he sells the glasses, and McCoy is like, "Hey, I gave you those as a present," and of course, uh, Kirk says, "The great thing is, you're going to do it again." <laughs> That's right; they're in a time loop. I kind of like to forget about Star Trek's three, four. Well, I think we're, I think we'll get to possibly that too. Six, that but that's another story. I don't know. So I watched Star Trek three, and it made me uh, because I blocked it out of my memory, and it made me re- remember that two, three, and four are really just one long story. That's kind of yeah. If you watch them all together, it, it's kind of neat. And then there's five. Yeah. No. 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 Oh, no. no. <laughs> the other thing that struck me. About this was Ricardo Montalban is so great. I mean, because in the first series, no one knew who's, who this guy was. And then this guy went on to be associated with, you know, Corinthian leather. He was Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Oft Island. Corinthian and, leather. And you see him in this thing. And all I'm seeing is Khan. I don't, yeah. I don't see oh, yeah. Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. But Ricardo Montalban plays this like a real actor. As good as Montalban is, though, and, and I do not deny that he is fantastic in this, when they made the Space Seed episode, could they not find an East Indian? An actual to play Indi- an East Indian? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was, you know, let's, let's, let's face it, this is the 60s. We cast whoever. I think it was bold <laughs> that it wasn't a white guy. I mean, it was yeah, like, it, we yeah, got a guy who's true. not I mean, a white guy. Is that close enough? Yes, that's close enough. It almost works in the TV episode. Well, he's got the dark. He's got the olive complexion oh, yeah. and he has the long black hair. Yeah, black but in hair. the movie with his, with his hair of silver and his, his chest of soft Corinthian leather, he, he does not look Indian any longer. Yeah, I think they gave up on the whole Indian line. He was just a superhuman. You know, superhuman East Indians had a different look then, anyhow. 1996. <laughs> 1996. He was genetically engineered to look to look Mexican. In the, in the far exactly. future of 1996. And sound Mexican. 
the 90s were a different time. It was a very different time for genetic engineering sleeper ships with cryogenic. Uh, <laughs> the, the eugenics wars. It was crazy. It was, it was a wild time. And, so, and that was also another great idea. Let's just throw these people in and spend animation from space and see what happens. Yeah. It's someone else's problem. Somebody, yeah, yeah, so they're just shipping the problem out to someone else later. It, and it happens again, right? That's all Khan ever gets is they just like stick him somewhere else until he escapes again. It's a bad idea. Is, is there any reason this man is more than a little bit grumpy? Yeah. Wait. Now, now, was he put on the sleeper ship, or did he put himself? No, no, on the no. He was. My, he, they, my assumption was always no. that he escaped. Well, yeah, he fled. Yeah, him. he fled. Exactly right. They were going to get right. him, so he took off. That's that's right, right. In, in space seed. So um, uh, let's see. I I, I want to go from from uh, Kirk's birthday, the the saddest birthday party ever. Um, well, there's some Romulan ale, but other than that, that's true. And, also, the first time Romulan ale is mentioned in Star. Trek. Yeah, I had some Romulan ale at the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas. It was beer that was yes. colored blue. It was beer, yeah. and, and and it wasn't particularly strong beer. No, either. no, but it had blue food coloring. Which make, makes you wonder why? How hard was it to smuggle this stuff? Like, is it's like alcohol in the 23rd century? Just like really, and it's really blue. The blue food coloring that's hard to get your hands on. It's all synthahol, so you know nobody wants it. Exactly. So, you're drunk. so we cut to uh, Starship Reliant, which has got a recognizable face uh, in, in Mr. Chekhov. And if you're a fan of the original series, you'll actually see that the transporter room guy, Mr. Kyle from the original series, is one of the bridge yes. officers on the Reliant, which is just random, random little tidbit. Um, Captain Darmok. And, and, and Captain Darmok is on this. But one of the things that's really funny is they make this call to Carol Marcus, who we first meet here, who becomes a very important part of this movie, uh, to talk about, in one of my favorite lines in this movie, Chekhov says, does it have to be completely lifeless? <laughs> and I find that funny because, I mean, the assumption here is that these guys have gone from planet to planet throughout the known galaxy and every planet has life on it, which if you think about like modern scientific knowledge this is not very likely in fact it's probably much less likely that and that there are very rare pl- planets with life right any given moon should work as a matter of fact exactly and the the the, the little space station is orbiting a lifeless moon <laughs> right well they were a little bit concerned about you know a particle of protomatter and, and the, because you never know when you might find a particle of protomatter in the matrix it's, it, it's the worst true. in the sensors it's screwing it up but there's two big metal cargo containers and like a dozen super engineered humans down on the planet and their sensors get nothing (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing i don't know what's going on and more importantly is every starship not commanded by kirk you know run by an idiot (laughs) 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 you go back to you go back to every episode commodore decker i mean just these these guys are just like bozos i mean no wonder kirk was the youngest starship captain because like everyone else at starfleet academy there's a recruitment problem at starfleet clearly pike seemed like he was competent but he was he was immediately thrown aside yeah Burned, but I, I like that scene because you know the Federation and the Starfleet officers are always like, "Oh, we're all professional and we want to do a great job." And in this scene, they're kind of like, "Does it really have to be totally <laughs> lifeless? Can't you just we can use fake this it. planet. Can't we fudge it a bit. It's close. Come home. Oh, come on, come on. What's a little microbe or two between friends, Doctor Marks? <laughs> driving us a little bit crazy. Yeah, yeah. They don't seem really. With this and, and isn't the whole idea of transplanting whatever it is kind of against the, the prime directive? Well, that's funny, though, because then they cut to Carol Marcus and she's like, well, let me get this straight. <laughs> Something you can transplant? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yes, well, I don't know. And then she hangs up and, and immediately uh, we get that we get that really funny line where where uh, her son says it's like that Boy Scout you you dated. And she's like, look, Jim Kirk was many things, but he was never a Boy Scout, which is a great line. Let's do a little more foreshadowing <laughs> Just a little um, while we're at it. Just okay, and, and having bit. not seen this film, I have to say that I immediately said, oh, Kirk's son. Yeah, yep. 
Yep. Yeah. I mean, everyone, everyone who's ever seen that movie has yeah. said that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. In spite, of, in spite of the misdirection that they attempt to pull by giving him that righteous perm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which matches uh, the curls in, in Shatner's toupee, so. Uh, so, so then we go to SETI Alpha 5, which is a sound stage with like a optical print of like extra sand blowing and it's really fake. <laughs> no, no, no. That's SETI Alpha 6. Jess. So this is SETI Alpha 5. <laughs> which is my favorite line in the movie. And my, I was saying it over and over again tonight. And my wife was like, you are a moron. Shut up. <laughs> Doesn't have to be complete. <laughs> to which I replied, this is SETI Alpha 5. <laughs> yeah. Although, uh, there's the scene where, um. It, 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 there's some really nice creepy bits in here and I like the scene where they go into the cargo containers and they're like what the hell is this in fact I think uh, I think Captain Darmok says what the hell is this like twice in a row he's he does like, what he does this? what the hell is this and then Chekhov sees the Botany Bay uh, logo you know get your own Botany in the gift Bay. shop Botany Bay thing and goes oh no Botany Bay and and, and they run outside so that's kind of creepy and then right, where they are immediately unexpectedly presented with the polyphonic spree which I thought was <laughs> kind of strange in 1982 this scene is so bizarre for a couple of things first of all they do that pan over the bookshelf because you've got to see if there's a copy of Moby Dick there right yes and King Lear again we're gonna we're gonna foreshadow just a little bit um but then they go outside, they see these people, and my first reaction is, why aren't they calling the ship? In fact, as soon as they see the Botany Bay, why aren't they getting the hell out of there? Don't they have phasers? Don't they have communicators? They're not, they're not, this bunch of people, they're not making any threats at them. They don't, they don't appear to have any weapons. Like, it's never quite clear what they're doing other than driving the plot forward. And in the perennial Star Trek question, why did the captain and the first officer beam down yes, by, themselves by themselves to this planet? Well, they don't think there's anything down there. They just want to find something to transplant, right? They're lazy. Right. But still, why wouldn't you send the science officer? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but as soon as they see the cargo container, you would think that maybe they'd call in backup or – but they don't, they don't have Savic to, to quote regulations at them or else they probably would. Is there is one place they can beam down to and get – communicator control and then but then they leave there and they can't it doesn't really make it why wouldn't they just be like oh no botany bay you know check off to reliant get us out of here let's get out you see i have i have a simpler explanation this is not the a team of star no these guys are on the reliant looking for dead for dead worlds (laughs) (laughs) this is probably you know we're not trusting these guys to actually go out into the neutral zone. We don't want them exploring, <laughs> seeking strange new worlds, new life, new civilization. No, we want you to find dead worlds. You can work for the Genesis people. <laughs> Just there, right. no, whatever. No, right. No first contact for you. That theory is proved out when they, they they show the Reliant Bridge and the two crew members are concerned and they're, they're hailing the captain. <laughs> what should we no do? Response. What should we do? Eh, give it a little Let's while. Let's give it some time. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be fine. <laughs> Yeah, is there something on TV we can watch? Or... <laughs> exactly. And they never even show them taking over the wrong line because they don't have to because these people just like, you know, we surrender. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going down. We're, we're not going down with the ship. We get, you know, no self-destruct, no so nothing. We're they done. go out. Um, they go outside of the cargo containers and they're they're all standing in the desert there, but they don't show up on sensors. And they but they bring them at, back inside. And we, we know that Khan's got his bookshelf where he's he's got a photographic memory and he only has five books and he's been marooned for 15 years. So he's cranky. And he yes. can quote every and one line of them is from, some sort of regulations. Yeah, book, yeah it's not very. No, I mean this is why he's so mad at Kirk is that Kirk left him with like five books for 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 all eternity, and that would make me mad too. It's like give me a I mean, Kindle. You know, no Kindles, no no Come e-readers on. in that twenty third century. It's one of those books. Times. One of those books would have been Feed, Jason. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh Kirk. Uh, so <laughs> so um, right. Can we just say that Khan's had a few years to 
think on this situation. He, he's mused about it a little bit. Um, he's been stewing, I think. So, so there's some shots in the in the cargo containers scene of Khan's people, and first off, there's not very there's not very many of them. It's 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 not a big cast, and they're all like eighteen year old blonde white people. Right. Khan seems to rule a largely headband and mullet based yeah, society, it, which too. is weird because <laughs> yeah. he's this he's this eugenically you know you know Superman from India. And yet he's got like a bunch of suburban teenagers following him. It's it's it very weird. I I don't really understand the 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 casting of that. It doesn't. I expected that to be a uh, you know a more eth- ethnically diverse and probably like age diverse group. Unless the implication there is that the kids were the only ones who survived, and all of the older people got eels in their heads, except for Khan. I don't know. I, I seem to recall, though, in Space Seed, it was also a similarly non-diverse yeah. crowd. Maybe that, that's that it. Was, uh, well, so. I mean, the Enterprise but, itself wasn't exactly what we'd call racially diverse. You know what? Actually, though, Jason, uh, most of them were from various ethnic backgrounds, but the whole genetic engineering thing. Oh, know, I see. It turned, a, it turned a Mexican into an Indian. I see. So, 50, <laughs> and, so uh, I mean, but they got marooned 15 years ago, and these people were like 19. So did Khan have a—was the secret of Khan's ship that most of the people who were frozen in it were like four-year-olds? Was this like Khan daycare? Yeah, that's interesting. He did age quite a bit, and nobody else appeared to. yeah. Anyway, I, I, that struck me. It's, it's, there's a possibility that uh, they, are, they, they are the offspring of Khan and his wife. Yeah, they could all be his babies. Khan babies. Khan babies. <laughs> Jim Henson's Khan babies. Yeah. So here's, here's the thing. We, I mean, we talk about how, you know, Montalban, he does lots of, lots of shouting and, and, and great over-the-top stuff. But there, there is, he shows a little restraint. Very few places in this movie, but early on in this movie... He shows some great restraint that right at the beginning when um, when they say, I demand to know the meaning of this. And he has these great initial lines, which is, you know, you're in a position to demand nothing. And then he sort of sighs and says, I am in a position to grant nothing. You, and you and it's it's he, he could have he could have chewed the scenery with that line, too. And what I like about that is that that's that moment where you realize, you know, the ego that he has his frustration at having been beaten and been stewing about it for 15 years. And you know he's going to explode, but it's that it's a nice moment where uh, you just know uh, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, he's, he's building up his anger. He's ready to explode. Yeah. But Montalban hasn't, you know, he's not going to go over the top. In order to explode, you first have to, have to dial it down a little bit so you have some range. And it's a nice moment where you just sense his frustration. It's like, you know, I, I, I think so highly of myself, but I got nothing here. This is we've been living out of boxes for fifteen years. That's the fuse hissing as the spark oh, heads yeah. its way towards the body of the. This of the is Seti Alpha Five. <laughs> but, but but I looked at that scene and I said and, and I have my notes here. It's like, yeah, he's he's nuts. He's gone mad, and and now he's like you could see the wheels spinning. Like he's putting his plan into action. Um, I, 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 he's got something here. Now he's trying to figure out what he's got and and how can he play it to his advantage. And you see it when he says. You know, and Chekhov goes, you know, Captain Kirk. Yeah. And he goes, Admiral Kirk goes, Admiral? Admiral. <laughs> they promoted Admiral. that bozo? <laughs> he tries out all of the potential uh, right. uh, stress uh, points. All pronunciations, yes. Admiral? Admiral. <laughs> Admiral. Commodore? No. Admiral. <laughs> Admiral Kirk never bothered to check our progress. And that's when you start thinking about... Yeah. yeah, was that really a smart idea, Kurt? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> you know? Or maybe not, you know, making a note of it somewhere in a log just so yes. people know. Yeah. 
maybe the rest of the Fed check on them, send someone out there. No, they just went about their merry way. That was what they done. And, you, and then I started thinking, like, wow, how many planets did these guys screw up? How many civilizations? Because they just did stuff and said, not our problem anymore. You know, well, we're destroying a civilization and their God and their culture. And now we're just going to move right along. True, but and you would think that Chekhov was there. Well, he wasn't actually there in the original show, right? But right. You would uh, in this movie. He apparently was there because uh, Khan recognizes him, uh, and so you would think, "Hey, we are in this system. I happen to know <laughs> that we maroon these people on SETI Alpha Five. So while we're checking the lifeless SETI Alpha Six, maybe we should just make in. sure <laughs> that they're still there. <laughs> just drop by and see how Khan's doing. <laughs> that part, just botany bit, botany bit. Count the planets. Count the planets. A planet is missing. Huh. Let's check closer. Huh. The, the, the orbits are a little bit wrong. <laughs> the missing planet should and have that's, been a And that's when, the, when there's a little right. pop-up message on the screen, a little alert comes up, a dialogue box on the screen of the Reliant that says, uh, recent things that have happened in this system, Khan was marooned here. What? what? <laughs> a planet was destroyed. <laughs> Oh. The planet exploded. Kirk never bothered filing a report with the Federation. He was never big on paperwork. Oh. It just never got there. It's an error. He mentioned but, it in his captain's log, though. I swear yeah, yeah, he yeah. did at the end. He mentioned something about Khan. They eject the captain's uh, log. They, the captain's log went right down the toilet. Yeah. I, I just thought the best part was when I saw this in the theaters, and Khan goes, I know you. And like 10 people in the audience go, no, you don't. You weren't in Spacey. <laughs> Chekhov <laughs> was down in the depths of the ship. That meant something in 1982 when you couldn't it just did. hit Netflix yeah. up. It did. It was serious. I mean, these people weren't absolutely serious. And I'm going, yeah, I don't think he was in uh, that particular scene. No, you guys really didn't know each other. Or at that point, Chekhov was already showing his potential and was like swabbing decks on the yeah, Enterprise, yeah. you know, gearing him up for his future work on the Reliance. Yeah, he was like 15 years old. And, <laughs> That's right. And not yet with the monkey's haircut. Um, yeah. So so uh, we shift gears from SETI Alpha 5 to go back to the what we talked about. There, We get the flyby of the Enterprise, which shows a little bit of restraint. Can I cut in? Because before you yeah, can yeah. get to that, right go after ahead. you get to that really gross scene, they cut to Kirk, and he's sitting there with his reading glasses on in the shuttle. Yes. Totally. Yeah, the, I love that bit. Right. The rest of the, 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 the world is about to explode, and he's sitting there with those granny glasses mm-hmm. on trying to read his, his newspapers. They're flying up there. And it's like, to me, it was like, great. Like, his world is about to fall apart. Yeah. The transition starts with uh, with Khan saying, where can I find James Kirk? <laughs> and then they cut away to Kirk in the shuttle, and it looks for all the world like he's sitting on the can, yeah. reading the paper. <laughs> he's reading the book. <laughs> Caught with his pants yeah, down yeah. again. <laughs> Going to sit with a smoking jacket yeah. on, you know, putting on some Klingon opera. And just chilling out. Exactly. See what else? I also, I, I have a whole line here that I'm not going to get into too much about. I'm not convinced about the SETI eels biology. Why was it that it was the only animal on the entire planet who survived? Why does it keep the young between its spines? What is the motivation to crawl into an ear? Why does it crawl out of Chekhov's ear at the end? I don't really understand that. That, that. that is puzzling. That was yeah, that was a big. Is point it not 100 percent fatal? Maybe sometimes they decide to leave. Other times they don't, <laughs> and they kill you. I don't know. It's a peculiar animal, is all I'm saying. Khan lied about that part. Yes. He didn't He didn't do a survey of the planet to find out whether other animals had survived. Liar. He just assumed. Kirk. Well, that might have been what, what they were out doing when Chekhov and, and the other captain arrived. Well, you know, this is another one of those worlds with an entire, you know, just monoclimate. It's, yeah, it's the desert. Well, it used to have more climates, but... But then, then another planet exploded inexplicably. You lie. There was life. You were given a fair chance. This, this is, is SETI Alpha 5! 
Scott, is that good? I'm just going to keep doing that because I know how much just, just keep it doing is it. good. Yeah. Scott, you've ruined us all. You've ruined it for <laughs> all best. of our wives and family members. It's the best scene. It's, it's the perfect answer to any question. Okay, so they get to, they get on the ship, and um, uh, Kirk keeps walking around with that book under his arm too throughout this. Which I, occasionally I will find myself somewhere with a book under my arm, and I and I get I get all. Tense. I'm like I'm like Captain Kirk now. I got a book under my arm. It's very strange. Um, and and uh, they get on the bridge, and there's this, the funny moment where Spock gets out of the chair and basically says, "Hasavik, how many times have you piloted a ship out of space dock?" She's like, "Well, I've never done." And he's like, "Do it. Take it out." And then and then Kirk and McCoy are like, "Holy cow! What's go- what's Spock? Spock, you drive the ship. Don't." I love the bones line there too. Would you like, like a tranquilizer? A tranquilizer? And and the looks on their faces are so vaudevillian, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, horrified. It's like, it's it's like taking your kid out to drive for the first time and you're sitting in, you know, the passenger seat and you kind of have your foot on an invisible brake. Trust me about that. But what I'm looking at it is how difficult is it to take the ship out of space dock? It involves basically saying the following things. Half thrusters, thrusters, one quarter impulse. Forward. That's it. <laughs> you could screw up. She might have said uh, warp nine. <laughs> well, having now seen Galaxy Quest, I know that it's harder than it if looks. If you crash... So. Don't they blame Sulu at that point? Two lines. I mean, Sulu, what did you do? I just said forward. Why? Why did you go left? I I didn't say that. It's very is, is there a manual transmission on the Enterprise that I don't know but about? But what, what's nice about it is it, it it puts Spock in his role as a teacher. Right? Kirk is uncomfortable yes. because Kirk wants to be in the chair. He wants to be in command. Spock doesn't need to be in the chair. He, and he says this again later. He's he's here to teach her and make give her that first experience of piloting the ship because she's his, you know, uh, officer that he's grooming for for promotion and leadership and it, that's why spock is here and that's that's the difference between kirk and spock because kirk is the man of action he wants to be in the chair giving commands and spock doesn't need it he he's just here to have his students learn so but in this scene though it almost seems like although it would be entirely illogical that he's kind of dorking with kirk because he sees him come in oh yeah see his eyebrow go up oh and no he notices that kirk walks in this is true and too. only then does he have savik come and take the con well yeah but, but i think i think spock Throughout these scenes, is trying to teach Kirk a lesson. Kirk keeps saying, you know, is denying himself. And, and throughout this movie, Spock keeps trying to say, look, you know what? You may be middle aged, but this is who you are. You're going to do this until you die. Yeah. Um, so stop sitting there pushing paper. And I think he does it intentionally, just to drive Kirk a little bit crazy. You know, it should be you in that. It should be you in that chair. You, you and I both know you should be sitting there, not yep. her. And I'm going to have her drive. Yeah. Now, see, that is entirely logical. Good work. You go sit in the back and, and put your glasses on and read a book. Okay. I like it. <laughs> Yeah, she's going to say the sentences that makes this machine move. Yeah, she's going to tell <laughs> she's going to tell Sulu to press the button that Impulse makes the machine power move. head half. Hey, good job. So then there's a um, there's a really nice scene uh, that uh, in in the in the turbo lift where um, Kirk goes into the elevator and uh, and and he runs into Savik and she's got her hair different. Her hair is down and she's wearing like this kind of regulation Starfleet bathrobe or something it's very strange <laughs> yeah. um and and as a kid watching this on vhs um this scene was uh, a a couple of single shots back and forth as they talk and then i got the dvd in its letterbox and it turns out that the way they did this on the dvd is it's a it's a single shot so they they enter the turbo lift and the doors close and they're in one and by the end of the scene they open again and they're in someplace else so they've obviously been like moving the set around <laughs> yeah. and the vhs version completely ruins it by cutting back and forth but what's cool about it is you know 
Kirk asks about her hair and all of that, which is just kind of random. And and uh, and then she asks about the Kobayashi Maru, and he 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 completely evades her. Um, and then she leaves, and and McCoy comes in, and sa- and does the question we always ask: Who's been holding up the damn elevator? Right, because they pause yeah. these elevators all the time, and it's like, how many backup elevators do you need in the Enterprise for people to have conversations? Like meetings are held in the elevators, <laughs> and Bones is like, what, what the hell? I'm waiting for an elevator here. She leaves, he comes in, and then a line that kills me, and I just I love it for what it says about Bones and what it says about Kirk. Is he says, did she change her hair? And Kirk says, I didn't notice. Liar. The first well, and you know he noticed because she at one point she goes for the button and he actually flinches oh, and pulls oh, away. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, my oh, God. Yeah. What's going on here? Well, she's, she's freaking out because it's sort of like an intern being alone with, you know, uh, Bill Clinton. And it's sort of like, you know, oh, it's regulation, sir. <laughs> sure, well, you know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dressed properly. You and- think Spock hasn't told her about Kirk? I think that's uh, very clearly he's done that. So then Carol Marcus comes up and that's actually a really nice uh, moment where Bones is like, whoa, Carol Marcus, huh? And <laughs> Kirk just gets really pissed off. And, 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 and Bones is like, sorry, I, you know, geez, I didn't sensitive there. But it's, I, I really love that scene because there's so much going on in it. This would be a good time probably to point out how crucial Bones is oh, to man. the enjoyment of Star Trek proper. Oh, man. Well, he's, it's such he's a great character. Amazing. His, his delivery is fantastic. He always gets the best oh, lines. Yeah. It's, the cantankerous bastard is probably my all-time favorite archetype. And, and I don't think DeFo- anybody has done it better than DeForest Kelly in any TV show that I can remember. Anytime anything is being taken too seriously, you get Bones in there. And he's needling people, and it doesn't matter who. He can needle Kirk. He can needle Spock. He he will question the whole premise of something just because he's cranky. It's great. He it's such a great yeah. Character. There's, well, there's a couple of great moments, and we're, and we're not we're not quite there yet. But there's one great line when they're actually, you know, later on. Um, Spock says, and they were leaving, and Spock says, be careful, Jim. And McCoy goes, we, we will. <laughs> it's like the classic um, between them. Yeah. Um, these are three people that have, you know, grown older together. They, they've been through a lot together. And, you know, they're, they're just trying to help Jim get through this midlife crisis. And fortunately, there was a little crisis uh, of the universe coming along uh, to help this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, and that that interaction, the character interaction, is is one of the things that makes the movie uh, so much fun. Um, so the next scene is uh, oh, we cut away to Space Station Regular One, and uh, and, the, and it's the one se- scene where it's not just sort of Carol and David, but the, the, you've got like the five or six other members of the science team there. And um, I just wanted to mention that because they don't really, uh, you know, until their dead bodies are hanging upside down, you, you don't really back. see much of them. And and I feel like. Uh, there's an entire other movie here that we don't see, which is the story of the science team that invents this uh, amazing thing, and they're working with the government to figure out where to deploy it, and then the thing gets perverted, and this, you know, the ship comes to take it away, but it turns out there are these crazy people who are like almost savage people who come out and they 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 attack them, and they're 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 trying to buy time for the people to escape, and that people are tortured, but they don't give up the information, and there's like this amazing other story about what happens to the science team, and we don't see any of it, right? I mean, we see them murmur, murmur, murmur. What do you mean that they're coming to get our thing and then they're dead 
and and we don't see the rest of it. But that's but I think that's great because they did not spend a lot of time in this movie with stupid exposition. There aren't a whole lot of long speeches. If they made that today, they would have added on another forty minutes to tell that. Oh sure, but I, when but it didn't need to be I like told. that. In the uh, as a kid, I read the I read the novelization of this of this movie, and there there is a little bit more of character development of these guys. And and I think about that every time I see them hanging upside down with their throats <laughs> cut. It's like oh poor scientists. They did you know because it's kind of a nice story. They like they refuse to answer Khan's questions they buy time for them to get genesis away um but so there's that moment here where we where we see them getting upset that that chekhov has said they're going to come take genesis away and we know that bad things are going to happen to this poor our, our friends in the t- in the science team and then you cut back to the enterprise and uh once again the enterprise is the only ship in the quadrant that can deal with a with a crisis. It makes absolutely no sense. Why would the Enterprise be the only ship in the quadrant that has Earth in that it, has which Earth is in the it. headquarters of Starfleet? It doesn't make any sense. Because well, SETI Alpha 5 is a backwater. This is SETI Alpha 5! And not only that, but don't they know the Reliant is in that quadrant? Yeah. It's true. It's very close by. So... I have a theory that it's not the only ship in the quadrant, and it's really just Kirk being like, hey, it's Carol Marcus, something's going on. I want to take control of the ship anyway. Uh, yeah, we're the only ones, really, who are close. Um, really. So I'm going to take over now, okay? <laughs> just Well, they know Chekhov's at the helm of the Reliant, so there's that. Yeah, they got a problem. And, well, and that scene with Carol Marcus is great because it's clear they're using AT&T to communicate subspace <laughs> transmission. 23rd century, AT&T has the franchise. They can't keep a signal going. There's only one bar. That regular one. That's right. One bar. What? It was really, it's like talking on an iPhone in the early. What? What'd you say? I can't. Hello? What? Uh, it was programmed by the same guy Genesis. that did the autopilot out of the space yeah. dock. Throughout their static, too, which is funny because now in a digital era, there's no, but it's like TV static. Like, oh, I could barely make you out. Let them eat static. Yes, exactly right. It's all It's all actually TV static. But what, what is this static of which you speak? Let them eat MPEG artifacts. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach them. Let them eat Skype interference. But then you have a great scene with Kirk and Spock. I think that's a fantastic scene. Yes, and I always like seeing Spock's quarters because it looks for all the world like the, the anteroom of a Benihana. <laughs> <laughs> keep expecting somebody to walk up and, and ask if you want to sit in the dining room yeah. or do you want Tepon? Interesting. Interesting. I did make an. I made a note that says Spock's quarters, kind of tacky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he he's not into the material things. He's just got a rug and a thing hanging on the wall. A dream catcher, maybe. Strange mirror made of pennies, apparently. Reflection. Yeah. <laughs> and I swear to God that that mirror with all the light bulbs. My parents had that on their wall. Yeah. <laughs> in nineteen eighty. Oh yeah. What most people don't know is that Spock really was a fan of nineteen seventies memorabilia. And collected it. Yeah. He's got a Fleetwood, Ma- Fleetwood Mac out. Right. There was a novel lamp on his bedside yeah. table that I believe that got cut on the show. That's right. There you go. It's only logical. Nobody remembered who Khan was in Space Seed, but Spock knew all about the lava lamp. Exactly. That's exactly. correct. This is this is the key scene, though, where... where um, yes. And, and actually, I, I would like to pair it with the scene that follows immediately, which is where Khan's right-hand man, Joachim, talks to him. Wait, Khan, you know Khan's right-hand man's Joachim, name? yes. Joachim. Yes, Joachim. Wow. I'll avenge you. He does say it. He says it at the end. Yeah, he does say it. Unlike some of the Star Wars characters that Dan and John talk about and they know them and they're only actually named that because of their action figure, Joachim is actually named in the in the movie. It's Judson Scott. He was in a bunch of TV shows in the 80s. If, if you'd like to prefer to say that it's Judson Scott from like The Phoenix and other random shows that were on in the 80s, 
Um, but anyway, so no, no, I'm, I'm okay with Joachim. Joachim, no, he'll always be, he'll always be walking to me. That's, Joachim. you know, just I didn't know if he was like the back of the tenor, uh, bubble wrap or something yeah. at one point, and that's how you knew his name. No, like, no, that's the only reason anybody knew who the hell IG88 was. Exactly. No, no, he's actually mentioned in the movie, unlike many of those Star Wars characters. So we get the needs of the many and the needs of the few. I have been and always shall be your friend. Uh, but what really is great here is that Kirk is really apologetic, right? He's like, well, there's this thing, and, and Spock's like, take the ship. And, and right. Kirk's like, yes. no, 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 I, no, I know you want the ship. No, you want no, no, the ship. no, 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 just, just drop know, me cool off. With it. Get in, get in just the chair. Dro- just drop me off. You've, drop you've me off. You've proven yourself responsible time and time again. You can command this ship full of trainees, and nothing bad will happen to them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Surely there would not be an, an emergency of some kind. That well, well, we forgot that scene when he meets Scotty when they first get on there, and he goes over to one of the trainees. You know, like, what's your name? And and yeah. it's like, I'm going. Yeah. He's dead. Richard. Yeah, oh, <laughs> it's like a war movie. Yeah. That guy's dying. At some point, that guy is dead. I think in the novelization, that was like Scotty's neck. It's actually, they, they shot scenes and uh, and yeah, cut, cut them, them and, and they're in the deleted scenes. Uh, that is Scotty's nephew and there's there's more about that and it makes it that much. It actually is a very yep. sad scene when he dies and Scotty's sad. It doesn't really matter whether he's his relative or not. He's, Scotty's just upset that he was doing his duty and he and he died. There, there, there is a certain set of a logic of he's not Scotty's nephew as in why the hell is he bringing this wounded guy to the bridge instead of sickbay? Because he's loopy from the fumes. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. Sick Bay maybe the place. For maybe. Him. Well, he was he was the only one that stayed at his post. Right? He wants McCoy. I mean, right, everybody else bailed, and so he was probably the one that was close at hand, so Scotty could come and present him dramatically. Yeah, yeah, that's like <laughs> that's, that's right. That's the young kid in the war movie. You know, he's dead. He's gone. I just saw him. That's twenty third century. This is the version. They don't have any red shirts anymore. They're all wearing red shirts. We now have to have the white, the white shirt guy. The die. white <laughs> jumpsuit guy white is the new red yeah so so um so i i like and, and one other thing that i noticed a, a, in the scene where they enter and spock is sitting there and maybe this is just common lore amongst the star trek fans but spock is actually sitting there meditating with the live long and prosper hands going ah he's got a, he's got his hands together in kind of a praying way but his fingers are separated live long and prosper style well that's how they do it on vulcan man yeah, yeah. that's how they roll that is, so um, so so Spock says, "Take the ship." Uh, look, I'm here as a teacher. You know, you should be in charge anyway. And I want to. Ca- the counterpoint is with Joachim and Khan. Is Joachim's like, dude? We got a ship. We're free. We're not on the sand planet anymore. We can go anywhere we want. Let's get out of here. And Con- what does Khan do? No, I got to get Kirk. It doesn't matter if we he all tasks die. Me. He tasks me. That's. I mean, that's it. You know, he he's. Me and I shall that's the him. point where Kirk becomes the white whale. Right at that scene. Oh yeah. And you know, these guys are just too loyal to him, and they're not going to say no. But you could think, oh my God, this. You know, he's lost it. Uh, we could be out of here. We got the Reliant because um, we, we captured the dumbest crew in, in the Federation. <laughs> what do we need this for? And he'll try that again. You know, we're going to see that throughout the movie um, where he, I, he goes later on. And we got Genesis. We got the Reliant. What more do you want? Let's get out of here. No. Nope. What's interesting, though, is he he does later actually listen to what Joachim says to him. And uh, and he actually, I forget what, what the point is, but... Uh, Oh, when they're they're damaged and they're forced to pull away. Right. He actually listens. He He's not so far gone that he he won't listen to his his lieutenant. But he, fight, but, but he fights first. First he argues. Right, with right. Him. No, and he goes and he goes. You know, commander. It's, it's, it, there is some degree you could see that he's got some grip on reality, but right. every so often he slips kind of back into that madness. But right, there, there is a, a a thing there with 
the counsel and the advice that he's getting. And that's sort of when we get the sense that this is now personal. This is no longer, you know, you know, this is not just a band of marauders. He's after Admiral Kirk. And I think the fact that he made Admiral was what pushed him over the edge. Admiral. Uh, that was it. Admiral. That just pushed him over it. Admiral. At this point, I made a note that uh, is Khan is a little obsessed with Kirk. <laughs> That's good analysis. Very good insight. Yes, thank you. Wow. Yes, thank I you. agree. I agree. How did you catch that? It's subtle. It's subtle. Most of us would have missed it. It's true. You have to really pay attention to it, pick up that subtlety of his performance. It is very cold. Yeah. <laughs> nuance. It's very, very but It is nuanced. there. I, on the third watch, you'll see it. Now, I think around the 32nd time I got so, it. So the uh, Genesis uh, briefing room scene. The first major, uh, like, CGI in a movie. Remember when retinal scans were science fiction? So I, I w- my notes say, I get a retina scan at the doctor every year. <laughs> it's, it's, there's a picture. And then it shows you top secret information. Yeah. I, I think about that scene every time. <laughs> Identify for a retina scan. And it's like, yeah, it looks good. Come back next year. But, uh, yep. but uh, right. you know, you, we had, don't have glaucoma. And, and this is where McCoy is, again, at his cranky best, right? Which is like... You green-blooded Vulcan, this is bad. And Spock's like, whatever. Inhuman. And and you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking this is a Kickstarter video. It is. It is. (laughs) true. That's right. (laughs) It's a proof of concept. If you give us – if we get enough backers and, frankly, you know, for (laughs) 500 credits, you will get, like, a planet of your own. We'll take your desolate moon and we'll just do something for you. Um, they really kind of blow it, though, because they, they talk up how it's a life-generating device, but they don't make any mention at all of how it's apparently also a water and atmosphere-generating and, device. And sun. It creates a sun. It does. <laughs> it, it does a lot of uh, cool stuff. Even indoors, it creates a sun. It's amazing. It is. But they don't they – don't, but no, the Kickstarter-like bonus is if you, if you take it to 1 million credits, uh, then we'll make dragons. Right, <laughs> you know, that's just so. That's just a, a little sweetener. If we get to a million, you can have a, you can have your own species. Yeah. and a T-shirt. We'll have one guy do all the fjords for yeah. you. Yeah, Slarty Bartfast. He'll. We'll but bring that's him in. what it struck me as. You know, I said this is like 23rd century Kickstarter. They're 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 putting it out there as Kickstarter video, and the Federation said, "All right, we'll fund yeah. it." Yeah, you know, we'll for, give you the Federation, This was the venture capital arm. Um, you know, Sandhill. They only Road. put enough to get the T-shirt though. Yeah, yeah, and and the Reliant. <laughs> and you know someone had a good copy of photoshop at a rendering program and it's just a demo yeah. we're just showing you we're just showing you some graphics yeah, it's a little cgi it's pretty basic it's all done in flash 23rd century flash oh i love i do love one bit though in that briefing well two bits actually the first is that is that I I love how kirk always sort of half rolls his eyes when spock goes on one of his logic <laughs> rants there's a great instance of that are we going to do this he's, again he's talking <laughs> He's talking to Bones about logic, and, and Kirk's eyes just go, whoop. <laughs> they rainbow over to the other side of his head. It's it's a great scene. Yeah, McCoy's just ranting about the morality. That's that's his thing. Right, what? right. This and could then, be used as a weapon. Who thought of it as a weapon? <laughs> <laughs> My God, and man. Then, and then, but the response oh, well. from Spock there is great, too, which is you must learn to govern your passions. They will be your undoing, <laughs> which yeah. given the way this movie plays out is is prescient in a different way. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right, space battle. This is this is for my money. I think this is the best sort of like tactical space battle scene 
that I've ever seen. And, and I there are yes. there are Star Wars the Star Wars movies where you've got the fleets of ships and they're all kind of going pew 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 and they're moving around are very exciting. But you know I never really get much of a sense of tactics from that. Whereas in Star Trek Two we've got you know two ships and and it's like a battle at sea or a submarine battle. It's it's yeah. it's a one on one kind of thing and they, and you can actually understand where they are which in modern action movies is actually quite rare and what they're doing and what the strategy is first when the reliant sneaks sort of sneaks up right in plain view on the enterprise and blows them away before they can turn on their shields and then the 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 reversal that happens at the end of the scene just so much tension the music james horner's music is great in this whole movie but here it's uh it's they build it as soon as that starts coming up. The music builds. And these are the way capital ships should be fighting. They're not dogfighting. Um, yeah. They're not flying around each other. And, and you know, as in, with joysticks, as in perhaps in later films, we discover that the Enterprise can be flown by a joystick. Um, but what I loved about this was here is where we see Kirk slipping up. He's a half, he's literally a half step too slow. And I, yeah. I remember seeing this movie, and even last night as I was watching, you're screaming, raise the shields, yeah. for God's sakes. They're raising oh. shields. Yes, and? And they're charging phasers. Yes, and? And they're locking on target. Yes, and? Uh, oh, I mean, uh... It does support his theory that he's going senile, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> well, that's why I said he is, he really is a half-step slower. This is where he gets sort of shaken out of his complacency, and he shakes the rust off, though, I think, is is this moment. Yes, but but true to your point, he's still miles better than every other commander in Starfleet, <laughs> in spite of having lost his step. But once again, a scene that I love. He's looking up the prefix code. He's got to put the damn glasses on because he can't see the code. <laughs> Hold on, just a second, Con. I got to put my hearing aid in. Got to put my glasses on. Yeah, but he whips him off to turn around and say hi to to, to tell Con to to wait for him. I love that. He whips him off, turns around, tells Con, "Hold it," and then puts him back on so we can look again. Well, Shatner did grow up in as a theater actor, and there's some of this theatrical flourishes of the I got the glasses, and it's coming through now, Con. But this is so great because you you see the wheel starting to spin with Kirk, and this is. The the, the archetypal Captain Kirk has a trick to pull from the original series, which is he's figuring it out. And there's that. I love the moment where he says, keep nodding like I'm still giving orders. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just just keep it going. Yeah, pretend right that I'm, I got a thing. I'm working it out now. I do question the security ramifications of being able to have a five digit pin number to control some yes, any is, random starship. Was, I had never <laughs> thought of that before as I watched this, but I was like, what? You can take over another starship if you know a five digit code. My password to get into my email is longer <laughs> than the code you need to take over a Federation starship. I, I think it's I think it's that Kirk, as an admiral, and, and and they're on the Enterprise. They've got like the 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 master key, and then they also need the encryption pin, and it's supposed to stop the runaway starships. But yeah, five digits, and then they're not even input on like a like a number pad. They're input on a series of individual switches that's of right, zero through nine. A, what? That's that's the tricky part, though. You you need to know the sequence of switches. Yeah, to throw. that's exactly. the code is second. up up. Down, down, left, right, left, right, yeah. B, A. Their shields are dropping. <laughs> there was one other thing in that scene that, that I thought was a little bit strange because he calls down to Scott, you know, do we have anything? No, we're dead in the water. And Kirk says, try the auxiliary power. And Scott's like, oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Oh, I didn't think right. of that. <laughs> I didn't think that. No. Yeah. Everything's fine. We have auxiliary now, okay. power yeah. on the ship. So, so, um, Damn. 
put the C batteries in the warp drive and we're good to go. So <laughs> when you watch this back, uh, one of the things that, that is fascinating, knowing every single beat of this movie, is to watch the setups. And and we see the uh, the mechanism for knowing that shields are up or down like four times before the moment where he drops the shields on them. And so when that moment comes, you're like, oh, I know what's happening now. The little dots are leaving around the ship, and that means their shields are down. But they, they set it up. There's like, you know, there multiple shots of different times of shields coming up or down and showing that screen. And it is such a wonderful moment. I mean, I know it's just, it, it, it's, it's, uh, they invented something. So it's, in some ways, it's a deus ex machina. But, you know, I love that it, it it's, it's showing the characters thinking about, uh, you know, Kirk's advantage is that Kirk knows the rules here, and even though he's he has blown it by being a step too slow, he knows things. And this this ends up being Khan's undoing at the end too, in the final fight scene. Is you know, Khan is brilliant, but he's obsessed. That's one problem, and the second problem is that Khan is not from. He's from the twentieth century, and Kirk knows the rules that he doesn't know, and and so knowing the prefix code, and and this time Kirk doesn't hesitate. Right? He's like, drop the shields fire 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 and there we go for the first time his age is not a liability he's got experience he knows right in lectures you don't have to know just you know how things work you need to know why they work right but we should know from space seed though that that khan has studied the technical manuals of the enterprise this really should be something that's in there but he didn't think to uh, to uh, change the prefix codes. Yeah, he forgot he didn't to know. change the prefix right? I guess that wasn't in the tech manual. I, I, it would have been nice if there had been the scene where Joachim comes up and says, Sir, I think we should change the prefix codes. <laughs> no! No! That's I want the, him without the prefix code. <laughs> and, and the expression on his face, that's the first time you see the old Kirk when he goes, Here it comes. <laughs> on its way over. <laughs> you just stand by there. Bend over. It's on its way. Yeah, that's right. And he would, have, he would have just turned, changed the password to SETI Alpha 5. So, oh, right. really, <laughs> he could have guessed it easily. And then yeah, just, might as well. Now, a question yeah. for the, the Star Trek vet. Do the shields actually turn on slowly around the ship <laughs> as they appear to in the in the, uh, the overhead display? That is if you have the uh, dramatic setting on, on your shields. Yes. Then they, they should, they <laughs> and why would you turn that off? I right, mean, the really. shields have to charge. You know, that makes a certain amount of sense. Well, no, it, uh, it, it would make sense. It's the first time that sense. we've ever seen some of these systems in operation. I thought they played out pretty logically. Yeah. I'm just wondering if that ever comes up in a, in no, a later no. film or in an episode no, where, no. as the shields are traveling slowly around you the ne- back of never, the ship, somebody shoots them in you, the back. You never left. see the shields. I mean, it's really only the device of like, you know, oh, shields are down to twenty percent. We can't take another hit like that. You know, that kind of that kind of thing. <laughs> this is this is actually well, the I'm... most complex shield kind of thing in Star Trek because it's like it's they go up and down, and it actually. It actually matters whether it's up or down. There's something technical about it. It's like, you know, they... they and it's also, it's, it's like the battery on my phone. You know, one minute it's at 100%, next minute I'm at 10%. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's no... One minute these things are at 100%, next minute they're about... Like, these shields can take one hit. It would be interesting if I pressed the sleep button on my iPhone and instead of just shutting off, it went... Around the edges and then went off. That would be... Now, the best bit about that tactical, that whole battle scene, though, is as always is the case in Star Trek, is the reaction of the crew and, uh, and and the command team when they get hit. There's nothing more wonderful than seeing 
guys hurl themselves across oh, the bridge. And there's a champion. That first shot that they take, there's a guy, and you got to watch for it, who is screaming and his body just flies. It's on fire. I totally nominate him for the, the successor to the Wilhelm scream because it is a fantastic yes. scream he lets out. What? And he's flying all the and way he across. he actually yeah. hurls himself all the way across the bridge from one side to the other. Yeah. It's magnificent. There is some mayhem going on there. And I love that scene also right before they go clear the bridge. It's not clear why he does that. They're not any safer off the bridge, but it's like... But he doesn't want him to screw up they, his, his subject. Yeah, they don't know about the prefix codes, and they're not going to be good actors. This is between me and Khan. They won't nod as if I'm giving orders, so they got to get on. <laughs> They'll be like, well, you're not giving orders, Captain uh, Admiral Kirk. I'm very confused what's going on. I also love how parts of the bridge just sort of spontaneously burst into flame. Even though one would assume that the bridge is insulated from the outer hull by at least a couple hundred yards. It's, it's to match the Kobayashi, the Kobayashi Maru simulation. <laughs> the console that Kirk is at is, is always, it's like somebody just lit a barbecue right in front of him. Yeah. There's like a hibachi going on in the background. Space wiring is hard, Steve. Space right. wiring is hard. And, right. you know, it's clear that, that someone has been giving payoffs to the Federation Electrical Engineering Inspectors. Because... <laughs> it goes to the lowest bid contractor. So That's right. This is what happens when it's out there. And um, first sign of a thing, right? Everything's blowing up. So let's see. I guess they go, at, the, at that point, they go to Regular One um, because they've beaten uh, Khan off and they, they need to go find out what's going on. And we get some nice, uh, well, there, first there's the gym, be careful. We will. We will. <laughs> I love that. And then uh, they, so, uh, so they go over to this empty space station and again some almost again i want i want to say it i mean it's star, a star trek movie but i almost sense a little bit of the the influence of alien here in the sense that yes. they do try to stretch this out where it's like empty spaceship these long slow pans you actually see uhura she's right. muted but she's like conveniently they're only able to find indeterminate life signs right because their scanners are there's the scene with the mouse yeah, or there's a yeah, there's rats. And I, ha- I have that in my notes too. It reminds me of Alien. This was two years or three years after yeah. Alien came out, and you kept waiting for something really bad to happen. And then Bone turns um, Bones turns around, and there's like eight dead bodies hanging bodies. upside down, which is kind uh, of I, you know Star Trek. That's kind of rough. That's kind of yeah, ugly. I I jumped the first time I saw that. that oh was, yeah, that was that was you know uh, uh, it was scary and it was pretty gruesome too. Is there like you know lowering them down yeah i i love that that uhura is muted but you can see her she's still trying to hail because she's right, got no other right. job she's like hello 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 and finally uh kirstie alley opens up her commuter and communicator and goes we're fine out it's <laughs> like shut up shut up we're busy can i just say something about these communicators were these like nokia casts off from radio shack because they're like big they're clunky they're ugly they're, they're thick but they're also super wide it's like the galaxy note communicator yes it's like super wide. It's yeah. for redundant circuitry. And I, and I just and I went back to check this because I have Star Trek one. And back then they had wrist communicators yeah. in the first movie. They had slimmed everything down, figuring technology advanced. And this looked like something they picked up at Radio Shack um, on the way out the door. Their um, style, maybe their I'm, stylish. My theory was trainees. You know, we don't give them the good equipment. They're going to use these old communicators. You know, war surplus stuff we got laying around from the eugenics. Technology war. doesn't usually get bigger, but they, between the original series and this movie, the the communicators right. got a lot bigger but i think they wanted to go back to the whole i want a thing that they flip open and looks like the old star trek communicators did let's make them bigger and clunkier um yeah and and you know these really looked like i I don't know something from like the 1950 science movie fiction movies it it was one of those little continuity things that just kind of bugged me that and the flat 
that Kirk spends the rest of the movie with his tunic unbuttoned bugs the hell out of me for some with reason. With blood stain. Did you yes, just button yes. that? I, I don't know what that's there other than to show me like, you know, the blood that he's still there. But now I went back and I looked and he actually unbuttons that himself on purpose yeah. as he's walking across the bridge oh, yeah. just shortly after they get shot. Yeah. And so it's, I think it's just, he's airing himself out. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a lot of apparently stuff that you can buy at the Starfleet, um, you know, uh, I don't know, swag store. Cause now they have, away team jackets that you can wear with nice buckles on them sure. and then Kirk's wearing his that's away you team can, vest. That's so you can give them to your girlfriend when she's cold in the Genesis game. Yeah, it was like a letter jacket. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. It's the space letter jacket. I like the Starfleet. Space letter jacket. <laughs> well, if, you, if you're yeah. captain long enough, you get a letterman's jacket. With the high collar. He wears his up with the high that's collar. That's the way to do um, it. Um, I, I, yeah, I, you know, I got the leather boots. I got the high collar. What, what is with the design of that, though? That that short with the with the one thing hanging down. That I mean, was this New Kids inspired or New Kids yeah, for several years later, later? Right. I don't know, but then that wide you know patent leather belt buckle. Um, right. Yeah. Starfleet unis by Oshkosh Bagash. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, in the chat room, somebody points out that that Kirk opens his his vest because Khan uh, is uh, he's got a little chest uh, going on. He wants some man cleavage. And in the original Star Trek, his shirts were always ripped in fights, so he's neat. He, that's as close as he can right. come is to unbuckle it. The the regular one scenes, I mean, the the creepiness kind of continues too because then they go down to the 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 transporter room and it's left running and abandoned, and they're like, well, uh, there's some coordinates here, but. Well, well, first we see Chekhov. Chekhov? Oh, yeah, they're, they're in the crate. Right, they open the crate, and they're like, the eyes rolled back in their heads like maybe they're dead. Right, we don't know what they are, but then we discover that Walter Koenig is a really bad actor. They put creatures, they put creatures in our in bodies. Control our minds. the creature on his uh, oh, cerebellum. And, and, Make and, us say and, lies. So that's the madness so that they, was promised by Khan. Do things. So they said they put creatures in us, and McCoy is standing there. Maybe give him a quick scan. Yeah, nah. is there a creature nah. still in there? No, yeah. Fine. Maybe. You guys want to stay here or you want to come down with us? Yeah, we, we brought the we brought the antiquated tricorders, so Yeah, we'll pick you up later. <laughs> I'm sure nothing bad can happen. We let you out of this crate, there are creatures in your head. Come with us. So they beam down to the empty to the empty coordinates, which is again that creepy moment of like they, they bought time to get they didn't get down this far. And uh, and and of course, there's a the funny McCoy line where where right, another McCoy. Suppose they went nowhere. Well, it's your best. It's your chance to get away from it all. Then I don't know what. Do you, <laughs> what do you want me to say? We got nothing. We, this is the only option, Bones. So you want to stay here with the rats? No, dead bodies. No. Okay, energize. And, and another. This is another foreshadow that I get. I think they might have overplayed a little bit. If we go by the by book. The book. That is like by the like book. Mr. Well, no, this, is, this is the biggest problem I have with the movie is that a a, a, a two year old chimpanzee could figure out this secret the ge- code. The genetic Superman, <laughs> whereas the genetically modified brilliant Khan somehow completely misses that hours and days are being swapped. <laughs> he's too busy focused on how clever he is that he's he's eavesdropping. And why can't all of their communications be encrypted? Yeah, well, it's I a five digit code. Why couldn't Savick figure it out? Now, anyone who's watching this movie, and he's like, he's not even being subtle. This is like, you know, when a six-year-old is trying to tell you a secret, buy the book. <laughs> wink, hours will seem like minutes. Wink, Yeah, wink. you know, but when I was 11 years old and I watched this movie for the first time, I totally missed that. I was so engrossed in other stuff. I totally missed it. And so that moment where Kirk flips his communicator open, his giant communicator open later, I was like, oh, wow. Right when I was eleven, so it is a great scene, and and I think the greatness of that scene is so powerful that you forget how lame this was. But when I'm watching it now, and I'm seeing him because he just kept saying, "Buy the book, 
remember, buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's suggesting that you purchase the novelization. Available from Penguin Books. Yes. Buy it tell, book. It'll tell you and, the fate of the science team if you read the novelization. And, 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 and of course, you know, we know that regulations because Savick knows every regulation in the book by heart. Well, she's a Vulcan. She remembers these things. So when they, when they beam down into the Genesis cave uh, or the, 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 the hallway that leads to the Genesis cave, I guess, is more accurate, <laughs> yeah. right? The, the Phil Collins Memorial Hallway. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, then uh, you know, we, we see that there's the betrayal of Chekhov and, and Captain Terrell. Uh, and they call up Khan, and he steals the Genesis device, and the, Terrell kills himself, and Chekhov... Yeah, I don't understand. Why does Terrell have to kill himself? But then the thing just jumps out of Chekhov's head. Well, that's it why it jumps out of his head. It's like, I'm getting the hell out of here. Somebody's <laughs> going to blow me up. Yeah. <laughs> Abandoned ship. It's self-preservation. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of them was a disposable captain, and the other one well, had a feature credit. So it was just, you know, the way it goes. <laughs> But it's kind of like that struggle, like, you know, where Khan's, you know, pushing him, you know, shoot him, shoot him. And he's like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I thought there was a missing line of dialogue there that they didn't put in, which would have been Khan being like, point the phaser and pull the trigger. Right. And so what he because what he does is he turns it on himself because he's got to fire the gun and he doesn't want to fire it at, at, at Kirk. So he he fires it at himself. Uh, but then, yeah. And then and then, boy, the, he, he he'd feel bad because turns out if he had waited like another 30 seconds his, right. his thing would have just fallen out of his ear it's true yeah it was just a shame well it's also he shot the other guy in that scene yes. remember that because yes. David, I mean, David gets his buddy killed it's self-defense though that's how the way I figured that. I actually like that though that's a good theory I, I think I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself for coming up with right. that I think the thing really bailed his ear because the other one got vaporized mere moments gotta get out of previously here. maybe two feet to his right it didn't work because he still got zapped. I'm toast. I'm going to find another ear. <laughs> one of my one of my absolute favorite lines comes up. Khan, you managed to kill just about everyone else. Yeah. Khan, you bloodsucker. You've managed to kill just about everyone else. But like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. <laughs> and what I really like about this scene, because it plays up well against the next scene, is right. he's obviously trying to taunt Khan. And Khan's like, yeah, I'm calm. Yeah. Calm down. I, I got I, the better of you. I got the Genesis you're, device. You're not going to get me to lose my cool. I, I got it under control. Well, it's I'm better than that. Khan, Khan gets that moment right. where he's like, hey, right. I get to maroon you this time. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, well Watkin gave him a couple of tranquilizers. Yes. There's calm some, down. Yeah. And it's like, I will go on hurting you. Yeah. The blouse is on the other pectoral. <laughs> <laughs> they, they broke into the Saurian brandy, and so Khan is calmer now. He's He's... He's had some drinks. Now, when, when the creature vacates Chekhov's ear and, uh, and Dies. Kirk zaps it with the phaser, which setting is that on the phaser? I seem to recall stun and kill, but this appears to be Bug toast marshmallow or something. Bug zapper. Bug fry. <laughs> yeah. Um, deep fry. Very useful on your planet <laughs> and need to uh, you know, cook a hot dog. Or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. It, it'll zap a set of eel or cook a hot dog. <laughs> that's what that's what it'll do as we so, see in star trek 5 when they're camping yeah and you can tell by the way he has that setting because what's on his mind because the next thing he says was anyone got any food yeah right and then yeah. the, the response to that is there's food in the genesis cave which i guarantee that's the exact same line she used when they conceived david <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> enough to last a lifetime <laughs> Uh, and and so we finally get the big reveal, dun dun dun, that oh. this is indeed Captain Kirk's uh, son. But it's in this moment of uh, Kirk again. We, we're back to the whole um, 
I feel old stuff with Captain Kirk, right? That he's got this guy trying uh. to kill him and you're, the son hates me and I feel like an old man. And and she tries to cheer him up. She's like, I got. let me show you my uh, my Genesis cave, which comes with its own off-camera son that is it's inside. Fantastic. And I don't know how. And you have to is. wonder about uh, Starfleet's uh, record keeping because they look at the, the, the Kickstarter video yeah. and uh, McCoy's like, well, it, does it work? And, and Kirk's like, I don't know. They filmed this a year ago, <laughs> but let's find out. Phase two. <laughs> let's go true. see. Because backers donate and then they forget Kirk about the Kirk was profit. not in the loop. They were stewing to get their money Kirk back, actually, was not because a, they had not, not gotten their planets. They not got their dragons. And they basically just wrote it off. Said, you know what? I'm just never back in another Carol Marcus project. Again. I always figured that it was just Kirk like, yeah, you know, this came across my desk and it's Carol. And I, I don't want to I don't want to know about it. It's yeah, I, she's doing her thing. I told her I would just leave her alone. So I, but, the, but the other side is they, she did say that. Right. It took them 10 months, which is almost a year to hollow out that cave and then they built genesis in a day yeah or they fired off the thing and the and made the cave right. in a day yeah yeah but yeah. Then, but then we cut back to the kobayashi maru story because um she's kirsten is not letting this go yeah she's like it's bugging her that she can't she couldn't beat this and yeah. and kirk still won't tell her mccoy is the one who finally you know kind of lets her in on the secret yeah yeah and this is the legendary not only does it fit with the kirk that we've known from from the original series yeah. but it, it becomes this uh you know something that really stuck with people afterward which is he he cheated he changed the conditions reprogrammed the simulator and this is something so uh fixed in lore after this movie that that in uh the jj abrams star trek movie they actually show kirk cheating on the kobayashi maru test and it turns out that in that movie he's cheating against uh spock who is running the test uh which is funny too but uh, it's it's fun to see how savik who is uh has sort of come to respect kirk and, and uh she's kind of appalled it's like you're a cheater right well, it's like you know i i changed the conditions and and david marcus goes he cheated he's a cheater <laughs> It's like, no, I'm like totally calling him on it. No, no, you just. Cheated. And then so you get the pivot, right? I don't believe in the no win scenario. Kirk to Spock. Flip open the communicator, right? Kirk to Spock. You ready? <laughs> yep, I'm ready. Yeah. All right, let's get out and, of here. And why did he feel the need to keep it a secret at that point, by the way? And I'll, I'll drama. Just, I'm just going to screw with you all. You guys just, you know, have some coffee and rest it's up. It's Kirk. I know. You got to have the drama. I, I got the secret code with Spock that no one else had figured out by the book. By the book. <sighs> I don't like to lose. But that is great. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Yeah, no, that's that's the key moment of the movie, and, and really the key moment, yeah. I think, of Star Trek, period, is the reason that people love Star Trek is because Kirk is basically infallible. I mean, he's, he's more or less space Ferris Bueller. He will figure you know? it out. You, you know he's going he's gonna to use his superior intellect, and he's going to win out in the end, and, and uh, you know. Oh, yeah. But his but actions keep coming back to haunt him. In other words, even when he has the victory over the Reliant, um, it, it, it's not a victory. I get, the best he's able to do now is, is a stalemate. In the past, he would have kicked Reliant's butt. No, nope. and then and Kirk isn't the smartest guy. He's the cleverest guy, right? He's not, Spock is smarter than Kirk, but he doesn't have the kind of the reckless abandon. He doesn't have guile. Ex- and and Kirk on. just has this all-consuming confidence in himself. I will figure this out. I can change the rules. I can get out of any situation. And these other people will help me, but it is all about me. And, and I made a note here. This is this is the point where he decides to finally fix his lobster bib. Ah. <laughs> so that, that really, I think maybe the whole purpose of that is to represent his, his vulnerability. I mean, it, at the point that the, the, the Enterprise gets hit, he pulls the thing open. And then once he's, he's got the upper hand again, he closes it up. 
he's no longer vulnerable. It's a you know when that, shields back what, what that was a parallel to. If you remember in Apollo thirteen, um, when uh, Ed Harris at the very end of the scene, they're all harried and everything like that. He's wearing like a tap collar shirt, and like, this this is going to be a disaster. These guys are never going to make it. And, and Ed Harris goes, "I think it's going to be our finest hour." And he buttons his shirt and he fixes his tie, and that's what it reminded me of. Like I, I'm going into this final moment. And I really love at this point because he goes, he's going on the offense. You know, Khan, I'm laughing at you <laughs> and you have superior intellect. And he finally manages to provoke Khan. You know, Watkins like, we got Genesis now. It's even better. We got the Reliant. We got Genesis. Let's We're, off, going out We're off the damn planet with the crazy worms. Can we please go find something else? And I think Khan's almost ready in that final taunt. I laugh at your superior intellect. Up. Make fun of anything you want. Not my intellect. I'll say this for him. He's consistent. Great. Don't call me Really chicken. funny moment. Because the, <laughs> the Reliant right. like springs forward. It's, Con, it's Con's like Marty McFly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Reliant springs forward like ridiculously fast. And you're like, aha, I got him. He's on the line. And, and Joachim to the end is like, we don't need to do this. But it's too bad. Honestly, though, it's, it's pure overkill. Because really at that point when he realized that he was duped by the, by the book, Oh, encryption yeah. scheme that should have been enough to make him realize his superior intellect was entirely fictional yeah right well it wasn't he said that he is intelligent but not experienced yes and finally like you know kirk's age counts for something experience counts for something and i say this is a middle-aged guy i i kind of like you know like that moment you know what just the fact that he's been around federation longer than Khan has counts for something um and at this point, the movie kind of gets a little bit cheesy, you know. Oh, look, there's a convenient nebula. Oh, at this right point, nebula. there. <laughs> this this is the nebula. Is I, I remember when I was a kid, I I, I uh, a friend of mine uh, gave me a, a Starlog magazine, and it said it said Star Trek II's plot involves Khan stealing a weather machine and trapping the Enterprise in a cloud. And it turns out that's not that far off. If it's sort of like you can see that they somebody kind of got it wrong, but the the uh, I think about that every time that they go into the nebula. It's like, oh, here's the space cloud. I I, I actually remember that, and I, and, I, and to me that was like you know, it's like an Apple rumor. You get part of the story right, but it's totally exactly. wrong. Exactly. So nebulas don't work like that. There's no like no. space lightning in nebulas. It, what? You wouldn't have like if the view screen has static on it. Why wouldn't you like go look out a window? Because in the long shots in the nebula. <laughs> Uh, you can right, see for thousands clear. of miles, but uh, but they're like, oh, this TV reception is bad. Um, so it, it's can someone fix the rabbit ears on the TV set because they want they want a submarine yeah. battle moment, and they want right. to have it be that Khan. And I like this part of it is like Khan is thinking like he's in a ship on the ocean, and in the end. Uh, that's his 20th century thinking, his one, his, his two-dimensional thinking. Two-dimensional thinking, yeah. Right, he and, thinks two-dimensionally, and, and this is sort of where it you know, comes back. But it's still like, just even as they're going into the nebula, like he goes, oh, they're going in there, and he goes, you know, let's try and discourage them from doing that. I'm like, why don't you just blow them the yeah, hell out of space? Yeah, they don't, no, they don't yeah, dodge shoot that, uh, And then he's like, he's blast. just trying to discourage us from going into the nebula. <laughs> Yeah. No, just shoot them. You want to kill Kirk? Shoot, shoot the ship that's right in front of you. Yeah, not the warning shot. Go straight to the destruction shot. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that that kind of whole thing was a little bit illogical to me. But you're right. I did like the scenes though in there where they are looking like capital ships, where you know one's on top and the other one's sort of on the bottom. They don't see each other, and it is like that that submarine chase. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's the part that I thought was very Scooby Doo like. Well, it was like Jaws. It was almost like it's Jaws. It's the long hallway you know? and the, you know the the yeah. Shaggy and Scooby run in the in the front across the two doors and right. in the background the the snow ghost runs past <laughs> going the other way. At the very end. Now yeah. it's the yeah. It, it, we're going to open up uh, a, 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 a little bit of aggression here. Yeah, but the, the you know the point from a, a structural standpoint is to once again have it be like Kirk, you know Kirk knows some facts that Khan doesn't really think of, and that's that's what gets him Kirk's experience, gets him the win. Except it turns out that the, that uh, I actually wrote in my notes after they uh, after they knock the the engine off the Reliant, I wrote game over, which made me laugh when Khan immediately says, "No, Kirk, the game's not game over." Is not over. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and at this point, Khan has lost it, right? You know, walking is dead. <laughs> if he ever um, had it, everybody's lost yeah, it the, now. The, right, the person, he's lifted up that piece of styrofoam off of him. Um, with his superhuman strength. <laughs> and, his his um, pet eels are dead. Yeah. Right? It, it's just been a bad, bad day, day for Khan. I like and, how the, kind of, the visibly woozy Chekhov stumbles onto the bridge, <laughs> and they immediately put him in charge of the weapons console. <laughs> which, which is that's yes, a good idea. But they're being they're just patronizing him. The weapons console is a joystick with a button that says "press to fire the torpedo." That's all it yeah, is. It's, it's actually a light bright boing torpedo. <laughs> The game of video game. You know, like, <laughs> You're doing a great job. Yeah. Nice yeah. work, Chekhov. Hey, okay, Good buddy. Boy. Let's play Space Invaders That's for the next 15 minutes. You know, uh, we'll 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 forgive you all the deception and the worm in the ear. Good job, Chekhov. I'm really and kicking then, some ass here, Captain. And the whole not not letting anyone know about Khan. Push the white take button over your ship and white button. Yeah, yeah. Just, you just push that button over Got and it? over again. All right, champ. Good luck. Somebody, check out fire, fire, fire. Sulu, can you get, the, press the button, just press the no, button. No, check off, you're on fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you want me to say lies or do things? <laughs> no. Just press the button, check off. So, so the Genesis uh, torpedo gets activated. This is this is Khan's final revenge. Right. Kirk With, beats him a very but... strange kind of detonator device. I don't know. The, there are a lot of circles you have to push down. It's kind of strange. It reminded me of like the uh, you know two keys to launch the nuclear missiles kind of thing. And it's exactly. like you got to twist. <laughs> you got to twist the thing, and then the thing goes down, and then you twist another thing, and it goes down. And it's like Carol, how much of the Kickstarter money went toward the <laughs> bizarre launch mechanism? <laughs> Through the aluminum finish. And was of... that the guy? <laughs> That, 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 that that's also shot. lifted from Alien, actually. That the whole self-destruct sequence yep. right. in Alien is very similar huh. to that. That's right, and and it's a it's a cool uh, it's a cool moment where uh, you know you see, when you watch it back, you see that we're, we we need warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead. And you see Spock, and it, camera holds on Spock, and he he thinks, and you know when you watch it back, especially it's like this is his decision. It's like I got to go down there, and he goes yeah, down there and true. and sacrifices himself. This is his Kobayashi movie. Exactly right. And 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 uh and he he can't cheat. But he does kind of. <laughs> well, well, so so they wrote they they added in after Leonard Nimoy said I want to I want you to kill off Spock. Why he said that I don't know. So um so he was tired of it. So but they wrote in he was having such a good time doing the movie that he was starting to waver so they wrote in this thing where he does remember to uh to uh, to Doctor McCoy before he goes into the just chamber, in just case. in case. Yeah, yeah, you know, you want a little backdoor. You know, little might, might might want to do an addition on the house I, and the Nimoy family. You know, all 
I love the moment. Put on the uniform one more time. I love the moment where um, so he's in there and Scotty is has gotten up and even though he's not, you know, he's collapsed and all that, and and, and you get the sense that when Scott when Spock's in there, Scotty's like, you got to come back out. Like he might be sickened by this, but it's he he could still survive. And then he takes the like the lid off the engine thing, and Scotty's like, no, and that's the moment. It's like he's dead. That's it. He's gone. Yeah, it's not it's looking real good. But, but you know what it is? What I really like is he put the gloves on first because we want to be sanitary about this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a clean room, please. Right. You know, his parents always said, you know, the little Purell on before you go into a warp core reactor. And it's never clear exactly what he does, but he does he, something. He, he fixes he something, things that are that down matters. underneath the little lid of the thing. And maybe without the gloves, his hands would have just like burned off. So he has the gloves. He absorbs radiation. Speaking of gloves, I meant to bring this up earlier, but can anyone explain why Khan keeps one on at all times? Uh, he takes one off right at Fashion. the very beginning, right? And then that's it. And I, I, yeah, I kept on wondering, like, does he have like a metal this hand? early Michael or... Jackson reference? or Well, what? he took he took one glove off, but then he became so obsessed with Kirk that he forgot that he had the other. He forgot the other <laughs> the whole movie. <laughs> it's a sign of his madness. Exactly. Remember, Khan has gone into space in 1996, which would have been right about the time of, of Michael Jackson's peak of, of, of thing. That's where the whole glove thing came from. And it was a little homage. Well, Michael Jackson may have been a commander in the eugenics wars. I like at this point where, where uh, they tell Sulu, Sulu, get us out of here, best possible speed. And Sulu proceeds to make the world's slowest three-point turn. Yeah. To back away from the Reliance. We're not going to make it. And did it, you really we? have to tell Sulu best Possible. Oh, you! I was going to say gas and, and oh, just kind of run it under. I was going at half All impulse, right. but I, I, I'll turn it oh. to best possible. That's right. <laughs> Sulu, you've it's killed us all, Sulu. Damn you. It is kind of sad that Sulu and Uhura basically serve the same purpose that they served in the show, which is absolutely Yeah, they, they in, in many <laughs> Star Trek movies to come, they found plot beats for all of the ensemble. This movie, all Uhura does is repeat herself again and again until Kirstie Alley tells her to shut up. And and all Sulu has really are his little one-liners like, we're not going to make it, are we? And that's about it. I think Sulu, though, in this movie, he serves as a surrogate for the audience in that he's damn glad to be there. He's just grinning oh, yeah. like an idiot the whole time, and he's pleased as punch to be on board the Enterprise for whatever reason. But he's got nothing to do. I would give a, a crisp $100 bill to George Takei just to hear him say, Soft Corinthian leather. <laughs> he might, uh, he might be available. Check his, uh, check would... his Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> Surely, there's a con somewhere that he's appearing at right con! now. Con, yeah. The uh, <laughs> so so the Enterprise, so the Enterprise gets away because they get away. You know, something happens, and the captain, everything's working fine. Jim, you better and, get and down here. Like once again, Kirk pulled off a miracle. Oh yeah, but. No consequences. Right. Everybody's fine. The crew. Yeah, we're survives. happy. Yeah. And then you get that. Now that we're old, there are ramifications. Jim, you may want to get down here right away. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you why. Cut to empty chair. They cut to the empty chair. I'm just going to say, dun, anyone dun, dun. Um, who has a trusted, loyal first officer and lifelong <laughs> friend, raise your hands. Jim, not so fast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then comes the big, uh, the big goodbye. This scene is is pretty fantastic, I have to say. Though, as a, as a non Trek guy, the the particularly the early parts of it, where we see Spock being weak and disoriented, and it's silent, which is just a brilliant move to have him be separated by the by the thick glass or whatever it is, and and he's stumbling about, and he's it's it's not clear whether he can see, 
and it's it's really heartbreaking. I mean, even as somebody who's only dabbled in Star Trek minorly, it's it brought a tear. He's blind and burned, and it's you, you know what caught me though, and I I only noticed it for the first time last night. They cut to that scene. Spock's in the corner, and he can barely get up. He gets up, and what does he do? He fixes his uniform. He pulls down his uniform. Yes, uh, yeah. yes, it's touching. Mm-hmm. I saw that Dig- exact got some, di- got some dignity. No yeah. matter what, I, 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 I'm dead. But my captain's here. I, I'm going to present myself properly. I, need I can't to be see. Ship-shaped. I'm going to walk into walls, but I'm going to make sure that I have no creases in my yep. shirt. Exactly. I don't I don't walk around with my shirt open half the time like, like some, some people. other jerks. <laughs> that, to me, just showed how great Leonard Nimoy was. That little detail. It had to be ad-libbed, uh, but that's what Spock would have done. Yeah, that's good. Right. Little moment. I like I like the um, I like Scotty's... Uh, He's dead already. Yeah. Right? It's like it's like no, he'll die. I got to go save him. No, it's too late. It's too late. You can't change the rules on this one, Kirk. There's nothing left for Spock but a torpedo coffin. <laughs> that we will shoot inexplicably a, at the point. A Mark 6 torpedo coffin yes, incidentally in case you didn't catch the gigantic leather lettering <laughs> on top of the and, and the very tasteful which, Mark 6 which on is, the top of the space coffin. Which is very ponderously lowered. Uh, because it turns out that the, doesn't hit you, know, you. Don't need to rush when you're shooting torpedoes in a starship. Just take your right. time. Just lower it very slowly. Oh, the Mark the Mark Fives used to really drool their way yeah. out of the the launch bay. Mark Mark Sixes are the only ones that are for, for the regulations. They're the only ones that are allowed to to carry uh, Vulcans as a payload. Yes, so. it wasn't it wasn't until the Mark Seven that they realized you should probably put the writing on the bottom of the coffin, so it's doesn't really ruin the ceremony as they're launching you out of the torpedo (laughs) bay yes and why exactly did they do that as opposed to taking his body back to his family i I just never quite got that i think mccoy suggested what spock it's like i guess burial in space but i mean that would have made sense for kirk but spock had a family and because he his was the most human Yes. You know, it's because McCoy said, I've got some strange, for some strange reason, I'm hearing Spock's voice saying to fire him into the newly generated planet. Right. I, don't, I, I remember something, I but I'm not remember. sure what. It, it, so, so how many, I mean, it's so funny when you look back on this that, and, and, and this is skipping ahead a little bit, but not only do we have the remember thing, uh, and the last line is, you know, there's that whole scene with the all is well, which is like, come on, is all well? Spock died, right? But, yeah. but, but we're, we're okay. We're good. But what really makes yeah, me laugh? Smile, shit and they're looking at that thing. We're all happy. But it's a little. I feel young. Doctor McCoy good. looks like looks at the camera and says, "He's not really dead, <laughs> as long as we remember, remember him by the book. <laughs> He's not really dead. I must." Come back to this place one day. Yeah, soon. Hint, hint. Don't rip your fake Vulcan ears off in horror. Come back for Star Trek Three. We promise it'll it'll be good. And I mean, there's there's some <laughs> there's some nice stuff here at the end. But I mean, the, 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 as we wind down to the conclusion, with uh, Scotty gets to play the bagpipes, isn't that nice? Oh, is glad he brings it. Just uh, in case. We have a, a nice shot of uh, the new Genesis planet, which has a sun that it's orbiting. And again, I don't know where the sun came from. Uh, before, before we get down to this point, I, I wanted to point out one more thing. Oh yeah, go ahead from Scott. the death scene. Ahead, yeah, there's there's the bit where he's saying his final goodbyes to Kirk through the through the through the, uh, the, glass. the glass. Yeah, and he's wearing the big gloves, transparent aluminum. Yeah, takes them off. Right, but it's so fast. He whips that glove off so fast so he can pull his live long and prosper up against the glass. Watch the scene again. You'll see in w- the 
one moment he's got the glove on and it drops below frame and within microseconds it's off and that hand is on the glass it's amazing he he knew well spock knew he was going to die very soon so he needed to get his hand up fast i think there's a but, whole a whole subtext here about gloves though in this film i'm not sure what it is yet no. but i did like keep... the line where he said that i never took the kobayashi maru uh, what do you think of my solution you know, I, that is I took some I took some consequences for my action, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> unlike you, who frankly was the cause of this whole mess and my death. I might add, thank you very much. Oh, and live long and prosper. We could have dropped Khan off at Starbase Five. We could have done I, that, but no, no, we're gonna no. reprogram oh. the parameters we'll of this. Plant a seed dude. for a future culture that will spring, and they'll worship me as a god, probably as the great Kirk who delivered of the well, whatever. Let's just leave him there. See what happens. You had to teach him a lesson because of your superior intellect. You were kind of annoyed that he tried to kill you, so you marooned him on a planet. You know, perfectly just within the prime the, directive. What thanks to Spock at torpedo coffin. Yeah, and you know they didn't check for existing biomatter before they dumped uh, Khan on that planet. Yeah, they just dumped him. Yeah, exactly. They didn't try to transplant anything. Kirk, there was also no sign of a planet there at all. And were there any like protomatter particles? Like, was this going to be a problem for well, them? Well, it was just the nebula. I think they used oh, the, uh, the know, gas. Nebula the nebula just became a planet. It sucked in the nebula and created uh, the planet. Is range nebula, yes. and then yes. why didn't they just do that instead of looking for a lifeless planet with no micro? Because nebula weather systems are unpredictable, so you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, this is what happens when you back a Kickstarter project from someone with no track record as an entrepreneur, uh-huh. someone who can put together. <laughs> you know what? They can do a Photoshop render, and people are throwing money at them. Uh, oh, and I should mention that that. That, that Captain Kirk gets a hug, gets to hug his son at the end. He gets the a world's hug. most awkward hug, too. He does, and I like that. It was very awkward hug, the little pat. I, I think Kirk just noticed the perm at that moment in time, and he think he's thinking to himself, "Is this really my son?" Yeah, he's tall and blonde. He also probably sees the uh, the cardigan he's got tied around his neck, and he's trying to figure <laughs> out whether he should hug him or or slap him silly. Right. For his well, he was on his way to play tennis before he <laughs> showed right. up here. Even in the 23rd tennis century, you don't Genesis pull that crap. Yeah. yeah, Genesis tennis. I, I was uh, on my way. Yeah, Genesis tennises. Genesis tennises. Yeah. It's true. Genesis tennis. But I did like the one scene, even though it was like hammering us over the head. He goes, "You never faced death before. Like, no one's ever like you've killed people. Um, you've marooned them on planets, but you've never had anyone die around you, have you?" Anyone who matters. And that was just sort of like a little bit human. And also that idea was, of course I know I'm adopted, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, here's your, here's your message. I haven't faced death. There you go. Ha-ha. Theme. Uh, that's the theme of this movie. Yeah, but he doesn't. he's pretty happy at the end, though. Yeah, all is well. No, it's more of the midlife crisis stuff, man. He's faced death, and now he feels young. Yeah. He's like, wow, this, is, this crisis is over. I feel great. Spock's dead. I feel young. Let's go. <laughs> This is awesome. It was that it was that Vulcan that was dragging me down, making me feel so freaking old. I'm glad he's gone. Buy me books. That Prozac was a waste of money. I don't need these glasses anymore. Pulling all that logic crap all the time. Screw logic. Let's go find some triple-breasted green chicks. Let's go. <laughs> I should have shot Spock at a planet ages ago. You know what? I'm going to come back here one day, but right now, can we find a bar? Yeah. I need some Romulan ale. I gotta, I gotta feed my Jones. We'll pick pick up Spock's body later. Right now, (laughs) Starbase Eight. 
Let's get to drinks for everyone. Starbase Eight, the bar at Starbase. Hey, let's open. swing by Babylon Five and pick up some hot <laughs> Mara. Sure, <laughs> go for it. But it's also that whole like I feel young. I feel young. What? Young. And and something Spock was trying to tell me on my birthday. Now you got the message. Yeah. Well, see, late. it was the worst of times when Spock died, and then it was the best of times when he realized that he felt young. Sure. The best of times, like Spock is no longer a pain in my ass. Oh, That's what I'm it. saying. Kirk is very selfish. He's like, Spock is dead, but I feel great. That's right. Everybody <laughs> celebrate right. me. You know, what? The ending. you know what? Right? People have died. Right? The ship is wrecked. But I'm, I snapped out of that midlife crisis. <laughs> can, can we go buy a BMW or something? I don't mind these glasses so much now that that dude's dead. Yeah. Well, he cracked his glasses now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I know. I know, but he'll have to sell them in Star Trek Four. So, so um, before we go, I wanted, I wanted to talk about the um, some of the ramifications of of uh, later movies, especially of Star Trek Three, to this because I feel like in some ways Star Trek Three kind of ruins this hey, movie. Hey, yeah, no spoilers. Uh, let's fire no spoilers. off the spoiler horn for Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Fire, fire it off for me because I haven't seen it. Spoiler alert: They find Spock. <sighs> They find Spock. There, there, there is one scene in that that absolutely kills me when they're on the Genesis planet and the Klingons are behind them. And again, another inept captain. And you're just going, oh, Klingon battle cruiser decloaks behind you. Want to throw up those shields? Nope. No need. Have you learn nothing. We're good. So Star Trek 3, here's the things that ruin. I, I don't want to get into Star Trek 3, but but uh, like my criticisms actually of Alien 3, where um, the first scene of Alien 3 they wake up Ripley and they say, "Oh yeah, that girl that you saved in the first in the in the last movie, uh, she's dead. Everyone's she's dead. dead. So sorry, so it was totally invalidates everything that happened in your previous movie. Let's start our new movie, uh, which is a big. Hope you didn't have any attachment to those guys. Yeah, that's audience. a big middle finger to the audience. So in, in Star Trek Three, what? Let's see what happens. Uh, they bring back Spock. So the sacrifice here. I mean, it's nice to have Spock back. He was in a bunch of other movies. He was even in the new Star Trek movie. But uh, he's brought back, which lessens his sacrifice a little bit. The Genesis device turns out to be kind of a, a scientific fraud, where they used like unstable proto matter instead of. So, so it turns out Carol Carol Mark. Oh, you used the illegal proto matter. Well, we couldn't. We wanted to get funded. So Carol and her team are turn out to be kind of frauds. David gets like stabbed in the back by a Klingon. So Kirk's son that he's met and had a uh, an understanding with now is is just dead. And worst of all is that uh, Savik becomes a really awful actress. <laughs> it's true. It's very strange. But I think David getting killed is important because it sets up Star Trek Six. I guess. So it keeps him from wearing future cardigans. Yeah. Oh, true. I, I, I think it's unfortunate that they kill him off before there can really be more uh, kind of like uh, interaction with, with Kirk. Uh, it does make you wonder what the point of that whole David thing was. It's used later, just like Spock comes back. My my wife was saying today that she prefers to think that, that uh, Spock died and then um, he came back and saved the whales. And what happened in between? <laughs> eh. I don't know. He's back. Yeah, there, there, back. there was a lot of Star Trek Three where I felt they unraveled everything that they built up in the second movie. Yeah, and although I don't hate Star Trek Three as a movie, I, I feel like it backtracked on many of the important things in Star Trek Two, and I would rather, you know, sort of think of Star Trek Two as as uh, as it is, and not about like all the things that they kind of back up. Because I don't want to think uh, looking at the science team and the Genesis device that oh well, it turns out it was all scientific fraud, and this whole thing was for nothing, and now it's just a weapon. And you know, it, it, it's yeah, it was, and, it was all just like really irresponsible and 
bad things. And, you know, uh, it was a weapon. And by the way, uh, you know, David Marcus was irresponsible. And, yeah, the just, worst part is when it turns out they use midichlorians in the, uh, yeah. in the rocket. You, you mix, mix in the bad. midichlorians. And so, so the other thing I wanted to mention before we go is the impact on future Star Treks. I feel like Star Trek II is a little bit like um, Goldfinger was with uh, James Bond movies, which is it was so successful in so many ways that every – you know, almost every further movie in the series sort of tries to be yeah. this one. Like Goldfinger, if you, I, I've seen all the Bond movies, and it, you know the first two Bond movies are not at all really like Goldfinger. And then Goldfinger is it's broader and it's got a really wacky villain and it's, you know and 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 uh, gadgets and, and gadgets, gadgets cars. And yeah. Every further Bond movie is sort of like trying to be Goldfinger. That's the template. And Star Trek Two, you know, not every Star Trek movie, but many Star Trek movies to come are templated on Star Trek II, uh, including the J.J. Abrams movie, which, you know, has its nods to it. I mean, I, I feel like it's interesting that this is the movie that became definitive and every, you know, every Star Trek movie afterward owes a huge amount to what was defined in this movie, which is funny because it's not the first movie. The first movie, they just kind of, like Michael said at the beginning, it's just like, bah, you know, Whatever, but uh, but this one keeps coming black. Like Star Trek Six is almost like a replay of Star Trek Two, uh, and, and uh, a couple of the Next Generation movies feel very much like Star Trek Two, and the J.J. Abrams feels a lot like Star Trek Two. So I feel like, you know, and that's not a bad thing. I, I think it's just interesting that this, just like with Goldfinger, it's almost like ah, that let's do that again. That was good. That this worked. Is, this is where we rebooted the franchise and this is where we started making money and we're just going to keep trying to make that movie over and over again. It is, it, there is also a curse of the even numbered movies being much better than the odd numbered movies, like one, three and five as opposed to two, four and yeah, six. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is also the moment of like, Oh, this is how you do a movie about right. TV characters. It's like, ah, I got it. We figured they it figured out. figured that out because they have to, the successful Star Trek movies focus on the relationships between the the characters, right? So that's why the I think they got this for in Star Trek Two. They figured that out in Star Trek. It was kind of very clinical and cold, right? And there's a weird satellite thing. And, yeah, and like uh, ooh, Spock has lost his emotions. Bald chick, and nobody knows what's going on. The the weird bald chick. Eight, eight hours long. <laughs> oh, one other thing I had on my little list is is and it's funny because you mentioned. Uh, uh, the bald, the bald lady, Ilea from Star Trek: The Motion Picture. I wanted to mention again, <laughs> Kirstie Alley as Savick because um, I think this is probably the most effective new character introduced to the ensemble at any point uh, in the original Star Trek. I think, um, I think it's a great character, and I think that Kirstie Alley's performance is good. And it's kind of a shame that I mean, I, I joked about it. They replace her with uh, Robin Curtis. I guess she didn't want to come back, or there was a salary dispute or something. And Robin Curtis in Star Trek Three is terrible, and then we never see Savick again because it was a huge mistake. And and it's kind of too bad in the sense that 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 character works really well, and she feels like she's kind of part of the ensemble in a way that I don't think other characters did. And I think they tried to bring her back in Star Trek Six. I'm assuming that the character that ends up getting played. By Kim Cattrall. It's, it's the same character. It's Kim they, they, they figured they couldn't pull the they couldn't pull the two Darren tricks yeah. anymore. Yeah, they you know, how, many people, how many Saviks can we have? So that's well, it's smart. It's smart at that, that far into the Star Trek mythos to bring on a character who doesn't really know the ropes. 
so that yeah. as you're bringing new people on, particularly with with the movie bringing new people into the franchise, to have somebody that can ask silly questions and bring up regulations that the Trekkies already knew by heart, right, was was pretty key. General Order eighteen, well, of course, and, and, and well, and also to act as a foil for people who who didn't grow up with the series to you know serve as the yeah, exposition, exactly. But I also exactly. like to see there is one scene in there when, when she quotes the General Order, and it's not Kirk that tells her to shut up; it's Spock. It's Spock, yeah. He's like he knows. Oh, yeah. He knows that. Yeah, he knows. They, they, you know, and the admiral's familiar with the orders. So are you insolent little yeah, kid? Don't embarrass me. And <laughs> he's familiar with them enough to know that Order Fifteen does not exist. Yeah, yeah. exactly Take right. That. You but, just uh, keep but, quoting orders and locking that barn right after the horse leaves. But she's great. She's great in this, and it's just kind of a she's shame that this is uh, this is that was her it. first role introducing uh, Christy Allen. Yeah, and she did a good job. It's sort of sad that, but it's 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 great in this movie. So it's, it's also uh, a little and, creepy if you see Sex in the City and you see you know uh, Ensign Valaris. Yes, Kim Cattrall. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And w- Wikipedia tells me that. Uh, that character was supposed to be Savage, yeah, but Gene so. Roddenberry objected to it because uh, I don't want to spoil Star Trek VI for you. No! No! You've ruined Star Trek VI for me. But that character ends up being a traitor. A traitor. And so Gene Roddenberry's like, no, <laughs> we can't have a beloved character be a traitor. Be a traitor. And also apparently Kim Cattrall didn't want to be the third actress playing the same character. <laughs> I don't blame her. I don't blame her. It's like being the fourth Darren on Bewitched. Is this does Yeah, that's right. I have just one thing to say, Jason. Yes. It is very cold in space. <laughs> this is SETI Alpha 5. That's my problem. Well, how does he know a, an old Klingon proverb? And is that where that comes read. from? He was, really? He's been reading uh, the library on the Enterprise before he got kicked off. That's right. Oh, was that not a thing, right. though? Revenge is, is best served cold until it was introduced by Star Trek, or does that come from something else originally? No, it comes it comes from something else, but that's sort of like, you know, you haven't heard Shakespeare until you've heard it done in the original yeah, the Klingon. Original Klingon, yeah. It's, oh, it's, God, right, yes, God, it's just a star, it's, the, old, it's, the old Vulcan proverb, only Nixon could go yeah, to China. Yeah, it's, it's a Star trek like <laughs> That's a Vulcan proverb? Like, uh, you know, it's the old, uh, I think Jay Leno, right. uh, back when he was actually funny, did this joke, which was that the Star Trek, you always have to have the ridiculous premise sold by the, the legitimate premises. So it's, I'm sure you're all familiar with the works of Plato, Socrates, and Cremus of Rigel 7. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little like that. It's Star Trek logic. <laughs> It's just you got to, well, of course, the three are synonymous, right? It's Cremus. I mean, you, yeah. Melville. I, yes, I'll chase you around the Mutara Nebula and around Perdition's flame before I give him up. <laughs> he, Khan, he had a lot of time reading that book. Let me tell you. Over. Yeah. And over. Well, this has been great. So I want to I wanna thank you all for journeying into uh, into the Mutara Nebula with me. Yeah, it's been great. And by the way, you should check out the podcast that Khan did on the Botany Bay on Moby Dick. It's fantastic. <laughs> the Concast. <laughs> I don't know, a little obsessive for my the taste. The Con did is it's it's a, It ran yeah. 2 hours yeah. for something that, you know, it took like an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 40 to read. To read, yeah, seriously. The obsessive Con Concast. Well, so Steve Lutz, you bloodsucker. Like uh <laughs> like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I'll I'll dip into your Mutara Nebula anytime. And Scott McNulty, uh, you have been and always shall be my friend. Uh, thank you, Jason. I think we could, we finally settled that Star Trek is far superior to Star Wars. Yes, we, there, have no, we settled no, that? We proved we it have, scientifically tonight. I think uh, motion carried. Yes, <laughs> I approve. <laughs> 
Uh, and uh, and Michael Gartenberg, thank you for finally being on the podcast. Live long and prosper, Jason. That's right. That's right. Peace and long life. Uh, the Klingon proverb. Yeah, the old Klingon proverb. Until next time, this is Jason Snell for The Incomparable. Uh, thanks to everybody out there. I feel young. <laughs> This is City Alpha 5. <laughs> <laughs>